Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. Later than delivered and longer than promised, Graham McMillan and I have for you the 100th episode of Wait, What? Featuring calls from listeners, absurd technical problems, theatrical asides, and, um, oh yeah, comic books. In fact, among the comics discussed are Amazing Spider-Man 700, The Hiatus of Jughead, reviews of a handful of DC New 52 Zero issues, including Batman Incorporated, DC Universe Presents, and Justice League. Also, we consider the very odd trajectory of Jennifer Blood by Garth Ennis, Al Ewing, and others, Stumptown 2.1 by Greg Rucka and Matthew Southworth, The Crack of the Frost by Lorenzo Matati, the original Rocketeer series by Dave Stevens, Bloodshot, Bandette, Shadow Cabinet, a long look at Jim Starlin's career at Marvel, and, as always, much, much more. The echo was a bit heavy on this one, and Graham ends up sending a little bit like Bill's above at the end, but we've worked our hardest and did our best to bring you 2.5 hours of funny book podcastry you'd be proud to have streaming from your ears. So, as always, we hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan! We're back! Two weeks <laughs> off, our 100th episode, and Jeff... I bring you a message that's going to piss you off from the future. I can't wait to hear it in the <laughs> past. Exactly. I just got, and this is not the, this is part of the future, but but not the part that's going to piss you off. I just got the comps of next week's zero month issues from DC. Okay. Okay. So that that's that's the issues that will come out on the just quick math twenty sixth. Okay. Of September. Right. In the center of these issues, there is a double-page spread advertising before Watchmen. Uh-huh. What do you think the quote at the top of the page is? Oh, please tell me. Please tell me you're quoted. Please. No, it's not me. No, 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 no. It's not I, me, is it? I, that would be even better. No, 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 no. It's from MTV Geek. <laughs> and it's this line. Before Watchmen has been an unqualified success. <laughs> Here's the thing. At best, Before Watchmen is a qualified success. <laughs> the, the use of unqualified kind of blows my mind. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe like, there's a context. Like, you know, maybe it's like they left out the, the, the clause that's in terms of stirring up controversy, comma. Exactly, yeah. In terms of shit-stirring and getting many people to say that they will never read DC Comics again. Comma. Yeah, no, yeah exactly. No, DC, Before uh, Watchmen is an unqualified success. <laughs> I, I honestly just saw that before you got, and I was like, wow, that is ballsy to the point of kind of staggering shittiness. Yes, exactly. To the, to the ballsy to the point of trolling. Let's yeah, that. no, it really is, isn't it? It's it's <laughs> kind of amazing. And I was like, I've got to tell Jeff. I've got to tell Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Unqualified success, ladies wow. and gentlemen. Wow, that is uh, that is very ballsy indeed. I have to say, good job, DC. I mean, really, that that's kind of amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. PR generally rewrites things and cherry picks quotes. Yes, but that really does feel like. A whole new level of cherry picking. Oh man! Oh man! It really does. Well, yeah. I don't know. It, do you have access to the internet? Can you actually look up that quote now on an MTV Geek and see if there is a, a qualifier in there? There, there won't be because I seem to remember that when it came out, 
mm-hmm. uh, people were like, I can't believe they said that. Right. Yeah, I think that's it, too. I kind of recall that MTV Geek was like so um, – was, was it the forefront of the before Watchmen apologists that, uh, that I'm not surprised, really? Uh, uh, it's from – it's apparently from a review of Silk Spectre issue one. Oh, interesting. Which, which is the one that people actually have loved. That is true. That is true. That seems to get the 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 most praise. Or the so most so it's praise. the final line of that review, mm-hmm. and it says, "Bear in mind, right? Silk Spectre is the second issue of the entire thing that was released, mm-hmm. and as we know now is like thirty three issues long. Uh-huh. As full sentences so far in our book, <laughs> for which has been an unqualified success." <laughs> Two comics, which were Minutemen issue one and Silk Spectre issue one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so in other words, that quote comes from before uh, Ozymandias and the Comedian and Dr. Manhattan. And what are the other ones? <laughs> Moloch, uh, which isn't out yet, of course. Oh, yeah. And uh, hang on. I can just look at this advert. This advert will tell me. Um, Rorschach, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before any of those. Uh, <laughs> so it comes from any of those, but they've just used the, the last part of it. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Wow. Wow. Well, that's brilliant. I, I have to say, I'm now looking forward to seeing that ad. That is going to be something to it look forward to. It also uses the, the, um, the cover art from Jim Lee, the variant cover art from Jim Lee. Mm-hmm. And as we said, Jim Lee has a very specific style. Mm-hmm. But in particular, his Silk Spectre cover mm. is so at odds with A, Watchmen, and B, Amanda Connors are in Before Watchmen Silk Spectre. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I kind of can't imagine it in a way, you know? And the Minuteman, uh, Jim Lee's Minuteman cover. Mm-hmm. So it was with Darwin Cook style that you're kind of like, wow, is that really like what, a comic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of amazing. It, it's, it's, a, it's one of those adverts, like you look at it and you're like, that's actually kind of nicely designed. Mm-hmm. Like, just looking at it from a design sensibility, it's fine, their type's nice, whatever. But then you actually look at the content, I and mean, you're like, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Read seven limited series written and illustrated by comics' top talents. Of course, no, eight. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, right, exactly. Also, there's a ninth title, because there's a Before Watchmen one-shot that's apparently going to wrap everything up. Oh, that's not like... Oh, yeah, right. I guess that's right. It was going to be a, an actual wrap-up thing. Good Lord, people. It's, as it, it's fascinating to me that they chose the Seven Soldiers, you know, Grant Morrison Seven Soldiers model to, to push this on, you know? Because um, it's like, really? A separate wrap-up issue with a different title? Like, it's such a... A separate wrap-up issue for, like, seven series or eight series, I guess, that do not connect. Well, so far, but I can't imagine how they would at this point, you know, unless, oh no, is Straczynski doing it? Uh, no, it's Len Wein. Oh, Len Wein's doing the, the final wrap-up issue? Yeah. <laughs> this issue's title, Sweet, Sweet Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great if every comic Len Wein wrote actually started with, this issue's title, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, no comic has ever actually quite done it that way. Uh, but, you know, if you if you like watching the Quinn Martin TV productions from the 60s. 
be awesome. Yeah, it would actually be. Or like the old police squad episodes where like the 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 written title would be one thing and then the announced title would be something else, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hammock of Doom. Yeah. Wow, Graham. Well, I have to say uh my head is just filled with delightful imaginings about the future, that place we will all live one day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just thought I'd, I'd let you know that. Uh, the only thing, the only one of the pile that I got a chance to look through so far is the um, Batman Incorporated issue one, which is lovely. Oh, uh, issue zero, you mean? Issue zero, sorry, yeah. Yeah, 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 fine. I'm, I'm like, that Grant Morrison, always trying to be different. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, it's Fraser Irving drawing, and so automatically... It's, it's worth looking at, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, Grant Morrison does the origin of Batman in one page. <laughs> it, it really is. It's him being like, hey, you know how he did the origin of Superman in three panels? I'm going to do it for Batman now. Go! Wow. Go! Uh, that sounds great. That sounds uh, actually super enjoyable. Uh, speaking of which, because you mentioned Batman Incorporated number one, uh, Hips pointed out, and this is something that I did not realize, but you, of course, and I'm sure perhaps our other listeners have been completely savvy about. I picked up Batman, Batwoman uh, issue zero yesterday, which I have only made about halfway through, really. And Hips pointed out it is actually the second Batwoman number zero. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> and I think both of them the are. Series. What's that? Or the same series as well. Same series, exactly. Tied into, I guess, the same series slash same continuity. So, well done, DC. Well done. <laughs> Very impressed. The first one, I think, was better. Yeah, I don't remember the first one being... Be slight. Like, yeah. really slight. I, I want to say it might even be like as slight as 16 pages of story. Yeah, but, I think uh, that sounds right to the, me. The new one, mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's because I've read the Rucka. Mm -hmm. stories the new one really just felt like a really nicely illustrated story so far even more than the other zero issues yeah it really i agree i sort of felt like they were tr at first i was like oh okay they're setting the scene you know of where this happens in the past to basically then continue from there uh and i think i'm about at the halfway point and like you said it's l gorgeously illustrated but you know sort of She's seen the Batman uh, for the first time, and the art style changes up a little bit. It looks great, but there still hasn't it still hasn't really stopped telling. It hasn't really gotten to an actual scene, I guess. You know what I mean? It, so. it doesn't really. I mean, I'm kind of spoiling, but also kind of not. It. I mean, it does. There's there's a payoff to it, mm -hmm. but the payoff for me was so slight mm -hmm. that it's kind of like, wow, we got like you know, fifteen pages of exposition. <laughs> or a five-page scene that all didn't really add anything to it. Yeah, which, again, I'm just like, Ugh. Yeah, so I haven't made it that far. It is kind of interesting. I did enjoy, uh, as long as we're going to be talking about the comics like this in this quick way, that I, 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 sort of, I enjoyed Wonder Woman issue zero. I loved it. I thought it really, you? really funny, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It was very, uh, I think it's a sort of, tongue-in-cheek humor that i like when it's like this was originally printed in whatever oh yeah oh, the, there's a great title for that. stories number two or something but uh, all girls adventure tales for men number 41 yeah, which I, I think is hilarious. i love that and i love that whole framing of it and so it's it's very much you know you've got the old school thought balloons and all of that i really appreciated that and i thought that mm -hmm. really told with that was really nice as well 
I yeah. definitely one of the strongest zero uh, zero issues because the zero issues have not been great. <laughs> yeah, that I I haven't read many. I like read this one, uh, the Batman number zero. I want to say there was another zero zero issue that I read, but I wasn't able to round up my comics from two weeks ago. Action comics. Um, I'm sorry. What was that? Action comics. Oh, yeah. And Action Comics number zero. So I feel like I'm getting the cream of the crop, really. Those three have all been fine, but it sort of sounds like for everyone else. Definitely the cream of the crop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a shame. There's been some really not so good ones. Um, I kind of there are ones also that I really appreciate if that makes sense. Like I really mm-hmm. appreciate the Supergirl one. I thought the Supergirl one was really solid. Just that mm-hmm. because I'm not following Supergirl and because it's a lot of backstory that sets up future continuity that right. I don't really appreciate it. But at the same time, I you know, it's really good for what it does. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I completely forgot how much I love, God, what's his name? Masmudajar? The, the artist of Supergirl is really good. Oh, Masmudajar. Um, mm-hmm. he's It's just like really nice, solid art. It's, it's you know it's not something you'll be like I am bowled over by this genius but I I really really liked it um, mm-hmm. I really like the Justice League issue yeah I have I actually purchased that because I was kind of excited it looked like it was all Gary Frank and Jeff Johns doing Captain Marvel and I I kind of wanted to see that I wanted to yeah and it is finally you know Billy Batson says Shazam and gets his superpowers uh, hmm. because of that and what follows I thought was really funny. Anything uh-huh. Gary Frank fucking kills in the issue. I, uh-huh. I think he does really, really good work, especially because his Captain Marvel, who isn't called Captain Marvel, but also isn't called Shazam. I'm not quite sure if this character is going to him. <laughs> <laughs> but he looks like Billy, which hmm. I think is really, I mean, it's its not a surprise, you know, historically. He does. Right. But so many artists don't manage that. Well, yeah, because I don't think that that's hmm, how do I put it? They they look similar but different to me. You know what I mean? I guess because in old CC Beck style, like you know, Billy Batson had those little black pin dot eyes, and then Captain Marvel had like the sort of slit eyes, sort of. You know? Um, no, but I think Gary Frank does a really good job of making them look alike. And again, it, it's a eyes, right? Right. right. Uh, and so that was really nice. There is also a terrible backup strip in Justice League. Um, it ties in with like the who is Pandora, Phantom Strangers, Judas plot. Um, that is just terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is it John's also Jones on that? And um, Ethan Ben Skyver. Oh, oh my. my it's, it's not good. <laughs> is there a particular reason just in terms of the execution is bad because it's only a backup or is it really just... clumsy and it's like hey mm-hmm. did you know the other character is the, the question but we're not going to come out and say it's the question we're going to leave it it's something terrible like you know well isn't that the question <laughs> it, it's really appalling like that um it, it's weird getting because i've been getting they've been mailing me like each each week's zero issue um, mm-hmm. On a weekly basis. Apart from really weirdly, Resurrection Man. <laughs> For some, I didn't get Resurrection Man. And I was like, I guess they're just not sending the cancelled titles, sending mm-hmm. titles that are continuing. But no, I got Captain Adam and I got Voodoo and, and whatever the other cancelled ones are. For some reason, huh. Resurrection Man, they're like, ah, no. <laughs> He's uh, kind of no. like Resurrection Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I 
<laughs> I'd forgotten when it was like last September getting the issue ones that mm-hmm. A, just getting so many and working through them is exhausting. Mm-hmm. So it completely mm-hmm. skews your idea of every other comic you're reading. Mm. Similar mm-hmm. in terms of tone, even like mm-hmm. Amethyst, which is a fucking disaster. It's just so yeah. similar in tone. Do you know what I mean? Amethyst is a teenage mm-hmm. girl and it's a fantasy land. And it honestly reads like, I mean, it re- really genuinely reads like Dante Dio. Yeah. Oh, really? Um, which is such it's- a shame because it's such a wasted opportunity. Because if book yeah. should not read like another DC book, it's that. Mm-hmm. And it, and it really does. And it's like, who are you trying to sell this to? Well, and that's my worry is, is that they kind of were like, you know, kind of like, oh, my God, we got to make sure this sounds twice as much like, you know, every other DC book because it's so weird. You know, I just sort of feel like I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I really have faith in DC's um, execution with the new 52 now because it really does seem to be a little bit of, you know, it's like present ideas as different from one another as possible and then try and create as much of a homogenous mash on the insides, you know, in terms of the storytelling and everything else, which seems like a very weird way to do it. Yeah, it's it's very... I don't know, because I, I was really looking forward to Amethyst. I was really thinking, you know, this could be awesome. And it's very not awesome. I, I feel really let down mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite issues was the DC Universe Presents, which is all the stories from the cancelled titles. <laughs> oh my, really? and a Hawk and Dove, and a Blackhawks, and Mr. Terrific, and Deadman. All their zero well, issues? like flashback stories for each of them oh, and then OMAC one oh. continues the spectacular acronym titles origins mm-hmm. matter after cancellation did <laughs> <laughs> you and given again ah oh, that's great that's uh great. and it's, it's the origin of OMAC, mm-hmm. um which again really makes me wish that book could continue because it's totally jack kirby doing infinite crisis oh really oh god i've got that's one that i'll have to see as a little that's a lord like chain smoking Kirby bad guy as opposed to like the smooth businessman bad guy. He's wearing like a spacesuit. Arguing with Brother I, who's like, I've made myself independent, Max. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, and it also but it puts it firmly into the continuity. It's like Batman created me. You know, this is how he did it. Um the retcon I like. Brother mm-hmm. I was built by Batman using technology left over from Darkseid when Darkseid invaded in Justice League. Mm-hmm. Brother oh, I see. apocalypse right. in technology. And that's why he can think for himself. He wasn't supposed to. Right. Right. Well, which is that that is uh that's about as elegant as you get in the new fifty two. It's like, like that kind of ties it together. I kind of really like that. Um mm-hmm. and the the Hawk and Dove story is very generic. It's like I am order, I am chaos. <laughs> what will they do? <laughs> I I wish that I had because if I could just sample you saying that in that tone. Yep. And then create like a, a disco synth beat. It would be such the perfect like early nineteen eighties, you know, post Giorgio Moroder dance single. It'd be so good. <laughs> I am I, order. I am chaos. Um, and the so terrific ties in with Earth One because it's James Robinson writing, and it, I kind of really like the Earth Two zero. And I don't mm-hmm. think anyone else did. I know the hips hated it. I saw his well, not hated it, but he thought it was really generic and worthless. Um. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it is because it's kind of like, oh, by the way, here's the multiverse. Here's the first person discovering the multiverse kind of mm-hmm. lost in it, which mm-hmm. I think is 
I mean, clearly setting up Crisis on Infinite wherever is down the line. Right. I, I don't know. Oh, but yeah, it's been an exhausting three weeks reading these books. It really has been. It's like, wow. So there's another 13 books to read, huh? <laughs> well, that's, yeah. So you've read 30 plus something, right? 38 at this point? Yeah. Wow. By the way, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you want me to try saying I am order and you can say I am chaos? Again? No, no, no. Yeah. I felt really bad. I'm like, oh, I hogged it. Uh. Don't you worry. <laughs> well, yes, comic books are exhausting, ladies and gentlemen. That is exactly the point we want to convey for this, our 100th episode, or as someone pointed out, our 159.1 episode. Um I'm sure there's other things that we're we're going to want to talk about and, and get around to, you I think. Or past uh, the 100th episode. You know that, right? What's that? No, we're not, Greg. I don't know what you're talking about. This is the 100th episode. <laughs> That's what this is. But it's also not. Like, we're the 100th episode in the same way that, you know, Amazing Spider-Man is finishing on issue 700. <laughs> right. Which it really isn't. So, hey, can we talk about that, though? The issue 700 and... and uh... People were like, oh, my God, they're canceling Amazing Spider-Man. It was like, Really? Are you, you even vaguely believe that for a second? Right. Exactly. That's amazing. I mean, there's so many reasons why that's, you know, completely not important. But the main one right. being, they're in the middle of Marvel now. <laughs> yeah, we're canceling because we're relaunching them next month. And everyone's like, I can't believe you're ending Spider Man. <laughs> I love. I think we should talk about the real one. Jockhead is getting cancelled. What the fuck? <gasps> Wait. Jockhead is, is going on hiatus while they retool the character. It's actually stopping uh, publication for the first time in 63 years. Holy God. Uh, that's I like, mean, actually, that's interesting, right? As opposed to, remember that yeah. last time they cancelled and relaunched Spider Man like 13 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. What. Uh... They say that they're retooling the character. Like, if there's ever anything that makes me terrified, yeah. you know what exactly I mean? Exactly what I think. It's like, really? Jughead is the one you're going to retool? Oh, God. Like, Jughead, who is basically a classic character, and some would say a perfect character. You know what I mean? Like, he, I, I, I don't... Like, if ever there's anyone that needs less retooling... You know, although I have to admit, part of me is like, "Oh God, they're bringing in hot lesbian JJ. They're making they're they're making Jeff's wish come true." So what? You know, from the from the gender swap issue of what? Archie. Remember, I was Mister like, "Ooh, female Jughead." I'm getting ideas. Is all I'm saying. I think they're actually going to follow through with that. Uh, you wish, Jeff. You wish. I'm just saying, I don't really wish, Graham. It was uncomfortable enough as it was. You know what I mean? Like the idea that that would then become the status quo. You're reading this comic. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm just, I feel strangely unclean, you know? And again, that weird feeling of like, why do I think that she's now a lesbian? Does that make any sense at all? That's just got to be me, right? And yet... Listening to uh, Brian Bendis doing a word balloon interview the other day. Uh, And he was pointing out that ever since in in Ultimate Spider-Man, he brought in Jessica Drew as Peter Parker's clone, but a woman. Lots been like, mm-hmm. so what's the deal with Jessica? Is Jessica a lesbian? Does Jessica identify as a woman or as a man in a woman's body? Like, what's the deal? And he was basically like, I hadn't really thought any of that through. Mm-hmm. But I just, when you were like, does is Jockhead now a lesbian now that Jockhead is a woman? That's a real question. Mm-hmm. 
Right. It'll never get addressed right. in an Archie comic, but it's a great question. <laughs> well, which I think is part of the fun of it, I suppose, is like you can make the case for that, but there's really no way that someone's going to go, oh, yeah. Well, actually, God bless them. I could see the current Archie being like, all I'm saying is you're going to have to pick up, you know, the Archie Pride Parade hijinks issue number one and find out. So it'll be so. Kevin Keller and whatever female Archie is called, female Archie is called. Yeah. Yeah, JJ is is how in the archer. Not that I've memorized the issue or anything. I just happen to my eyes and see JJ in front of me. <laughs> have the crown? I, I'm sorry. JJ have that? the crown? Yeah, JJ. Well, JJ's got. Damn it! I saw this issue in back and didn't pull it. I'm like, she's got some version of the crown. She's got the crown and short hair. She's got the pencil nose. They change her jersey like she's wearing a yellow shirt. I'm trying to think what it was that I was like, aha. But uh, I don't know. I can go get the issue if you want and and tell you. I I don't know. Is it is it on the internet? I, Greg, so I, can't you look this up on the internet? I'll be fine. I was just curious. As long as the, the crown is there, that's all I need to know. Yeah, I know. That sort of seems like the important thing. But uh, uh, okay, hold on a second. Just a second. I, now I've now I'm like being OCD ish. So so here's a perfect anniversary moment, listeners. Another moment for Graham to talk to you guys while I go and bumble around off mic for a moment. Really, you're really doing this? Hold on. <laughs> oh my god! If I knew this was going to happen, I would have said the joke ahead thing. I'm I'm sorry, listeners. I'm sorry that you have to hear me vamp for time. Although who knows, Jeff might cut this out because sometimes it happens. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, I'm going to take this opportunity to say it's the hundredth episode, and that's all down to Jeff Lester, who not only talks with me for hours while we record, but then edits the thing himself. And so Jeff Lester is. Keep talking. <laughs> wow, really? He just did that? Nonetheless, Jeff Lister's the king of Waybot, and you all have him to thank for this more than anyone else. And so leave something in the comments to that effect. Oh, wait, shit, he'll hear it when he's editing. It's not like he'll even be a surprise. It's all gone horribly wrong. Oh, no, Graham. This is exactly what I was afraid Which of. Which I don't know. I, <laughs> I haven't heard it. So check it out. I was wrong. JJ does not wear the crown, what? but... Okay, but listen, listen, don't, but her hair is kind of pulled back up like in a scrunchie and forms a, a crown type shape. Okay, that's kind of inventive, but nonetheless, what? Yeah, I sort of feel the same way. On the one hand, inventive. On the other hand, kind of without the crown, sort of a deal breaker. Sort of a deal breaker. Uh, and why did I, why did I figure out that Jughead, female Jughead was gay? Oh, I don't know. <sighs> I like hamburgers, but I like girls more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that was probably it. That was probably the point yeah. where... No, no. I was going to... We totally got off topic because I dragged you off topic. Amazing Spider-Man issue 700. Go, Jeff. Oh, uh, well, I have to say that I am fascinated, thanks to the miracle of you linking to it at blog at Um Albert Ching's article on uh, Newsrama where he speculates that issue 700 is going to end with um, Spider-Man, with Dr. Octopus's arms bonding to Spider-Man, thus leaving, leading into, I think, a very sort of clever revisit of the, of the six-armed Spidey concept from Amazing Spider-Man 100. Here's my question about that, because I think I thought Albert's article was really good. I 
I really mm-hmm. thought it was a really strong one. And I'd completely agree with it if it wasn't the fact that I don't think that's a strong enough start for an issue one of a book. Well, here's my theory, and I could be wrong, because I'm thinking of it more of uh, issue what what else they're going to do. And I, and I could totally be wrong on this, but I sort of think that they're going to... And again, like if nothing else, the cover art for for the Morbius issue suggests I'm utterly wrong on this, is that Spider-Man not only gets Doc Ock's arms bonded to his body, but he has both of his human arms removed. Does that sound weird? I guess that probably it, sounds it weird. It does sound weird, but also that strikes me as a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, bingo. There we what, have it. What I thought mm-hmm. they might do is if they do that, they're also take Peter mm-hmm. out of commission. And the Alpha is mm-hmm. going to take over as Spider-Man for some strange, in some strange way, for a while. Ah, uh, interesting. The new Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would make sense. Actually, I bet that's probably what they're going to do. Well, maybe they'll do a combination of both because there was a mention to the idea of the Lizard coming back, um, as well. Didn't they mention that? I think in in Albert's article. But- Wizards uh, just come back. Yeah, but right, had come back at you know has come back at least once since the whole eat the baby scene. Right? Yeah, I mean, um, just recently there's just a massive, massive um, storyline about the right. return of the lizard. But but that does not mean <laughs> that they're not going to do it again. Let's be perfectly honest. Well, so the lizard's back, but as I recall, and God help me as to how I know this, because I must have just been perusing the comic book, uh, like at the shop, I swear. But doesn't it sort of end where Spidey thinks that Dr. Connors' is consciousness is permanently lost in the lizard? And in fact, Kurt Connors' consciousness is back and there, but is basically not letting anyone know so that he can continue to be tormented for the stuff that he's done. I, I, you're, I have not read it. I really have no idea. Oh my God. This is some weird cats and dogs sleeping together moment. So you don't know <laughs> what's going on with Amazing Spider-Man. I, I read Amazing Spider-Man in collection. Ah, and I see. So I'm, I see. I'm way behind. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, anyway, I could be wrong, but I seem to think that that's that. So part of that, the, the mention of that made me think that the whole like armless Kirk Connors, who's always about trying to regenerate his arm, you know, for the first bunch of things would play into like if he's an important part of this storyline, it made me think that there was some sort of arm. That, that's actually a really great catch. Yeah. So, well, I don't know. We will see. But that was somewhere along the lines of where I was thinking. And I have to say, there's part of me that upon reading those announcements, I was kind of like, I don't know. You know, it's funny. Amazing Amazing Spider-Man is so, like, there's so many times where I find it, it it's the first time where I really thought that it was hitting some sort of, sort of weird blend of like, oh, I might pick this up, but um, if I work it. I was going to say, I might pick this up I if say. I wasn't already at war with Marvel yeah exactly (laughs) right thanks for qualifying that crime yeah no well that's it i wouldn't pick it up but it was the first time that i guess i've had some interest in picking it really i i the more the spider-man titles go towards it's a big story that counts the more my interest drops every single time they a big sure this will change everything storyline i am always disappointed not even disappointed but like not even interested for my money spider-man shouldn't be having you know this will change everything every six months agreed well and you've pointed out that that's pretty much dan slot's 
uh, MO on the title is is that every arc is sort of tries to make itself seem bigger and bigger in in a different way, I yeah. guess. Um, and for someone who hasn't been following the title, I'm I'm fascinated not because again it's not like I'll be picking this up, but and, and maybe it's not really that surprising that part of what might have intrigued me is the idea of them coming up with a goofy way. Well, not a goofy way because actually the the way that I've thought of it sounds like it might be kind of grim. Um, for them to come up with a way to take something that I think most people are pretty quick and would prefer to forget six-armed Spidey and and figuring out a, a, a new way to modernize that or riff that, I mm-hmm. suppose? It's, it's very, very possible. I mean, they've done the minimum clonage announcement, so if they're, if they're trying to rehabilitate that, <laughs> mm-hmm. then, right. yeah, anything's on the table. Yeah. Yeah. And so I sort of appreciate the way that they're somewhat game for that. Just the same way that I would be thrilled if it turned out that they were building to the reveal of, of Mike Murdoch in, in Mark Wade's Daredevil. Although, let's face it, I, I would be thrilled about that no matter who was doing it, I suppose. Didn't, so Didn't you know. Brubaker do that? Didn't I kind uh, of bring he? Mike Murdoch back? He definitely brought back the name Mike Murdoch because that was the name that Matt oh, used sure. when he traveled abroad, when he escaped prison. Yeah, exactly. When he was in Europe or whatever. Yeah, there's the, there's that. But you know what I mean, <laughs> um, The other thing that the Marvel are doing, the big thing that I find myself surprisingly interested in, mm-hmm. the new X-Men book. Like Bendis' X-Men. Really? Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. only been since they killed off Professor Xavier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that one thing made me think, yeah, I might actually be interested in reading this book. Mm-hmm. And not because killing off Professor Xavier is in any way new, because right. it's not. Um, mm-hmm. But there's something about you do that and then you bring the characters forward in time. And like, okay, so mm-hmm. everything's fucked and it is actually literally all of your fault. Right, right. Yeah, I think you pointed that out in a, in a blog app post and I was kind of like, Huh. I think interest is probably overstating it for me, but I'm kind of like, well, at least they sort of have a hook now. Because honestly, the hook beforehand struck me as uh, as pretty pretty weak sauce, <laughs> you know. And and in a way, I'm not exactly sure that the whole like, you know, you you know, you come to the future and then you find out that you're the baddie uh, is is kind of a a little bit of a staple. I guess the 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 clever twist on it is is that instead of it having the Hulk going to the far future and finding himself as the maestro, it's the idea that they're traveling to what is now our current status quo, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. You know? um, and yet, I don't know, you know, I hate to say it, but again, entirely moot since I'm not going to be picking it up. But I kind of feel like Brian Bendis is not the right guy to be writing that book. Uh, you know? That's true. Um, and as we said, Brian Bendis' death of Professor Xavier issue is terrible. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. His issue uh, 11 of Avengers vs. X-Men is just – it looks lovely. Um, mm-hmm. Oliver Kuypel and I think it's Laura Martin on Colors really like work their asses off in that book. But mm-hmm. writing-wise, it's – it's it's just bad. Um, it's kind of weirdly you feel that he's trying to go slightly outside his 
comfort zone. And instead of being mm-hmm. like, you know, overly chatty, I think he's trying to go for the very big dramatic, you know, and then this happens type thing. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't work. Um, and to the point where if there hadn't been all the press saying Professor Xavier's dead, I'm not sure anyone right. would have picked up that Professor Xavier was dead. But that, well, see, I agree. But uh, I mean, at least the pages that I saw online is, do you, is that entirely the, is, doesn't that seem as much an art storytelling choice? Like, isn't it kind of like, I mean, I don't know how it was specified in the Here, script. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. The way that he looks, I mean, it, it is an art choice, but I also don't know what else they could have done. Mm-hmm. Because what really confuses it for me is the way that Xavier looks is mm-hmm. exactly the same as the way that Emma Frost looks earlier in the issue. And she mm-hmm. talks. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's that similar to the real. Because otherwise, I think if if the Emma Frost thing hadn't happened, you could have been like, "What the fuck just happened to Professor Graver? He kind of looks dead." As opposed right. to because you see the same thing happen with Emma earlier in the show, and then she talks. You really, mm-hmm. you genuinely read it as, "Oh, so he's knocked out." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, yes, yes, it's an art choice, and yes, it's a storytelling thing. I feel that mm-hmm. either Bendis or Brevoort should have stepped in at some point and been like, "We mm-hmm. need to clarify in this story that mm-hmm. he is dead." Mm-hmm. It really struck me that yeah. a lot of the press, you know, the "Holy shit!" moment thing came about because right. they needed to clarify he was dead. <laughs> right. Right. Although I I feel like they did that whole thing with Bucky in Fear itself, where there was a lot of there was a certain amount of controversy as to who thought that really seemed like he was dead, of which I was one where I was like, oh, that's really? That's he's really supposed to be dead there? And of course, the irony is he wasn't <laughs> even. It's so, when it's such a weird. They're like, no, he's dead. He's definitely dead. He's dead. Come on. He's dead. What are you? Retards? He's dead. Only joking. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I no longer feel that that is actually a, a efficient storytelling. What's so. the. Um... What was the reveal about that in the end? Like, how did he survive? I actually don't remember. No, I don't. I don't remember. You'd you'd have to check. I mean, I think as as I recall, it's something as lame as they put him on the chopper and was flying him off, and then they were like, "Oh no, wait, we've got a heartbeat," you know, kind of thing. Like, I think it was one hilarious considering didn't like the axe go right through his chest. <laughs> Well, there is this degree of like, was it, wasn't it? So I don't know. I mean, again, I honestly didn't bother reading the follow-up stuff, um, but I seem to think that that was part of the explanation. But yeah, at the time I was like, you know, but did it go through his chest? I mean, you see the lightning bolt thing striking him, but at that point, you know what I mean? Like at that point, I'm just like trying to, trying to, trying to, trying to figure it out is kind of a mugs game, you know? <laughs> I'm sort of like, no, Marvel, apparently your job is to tell me what I'm reading, and then I don't have to figure it out on my own. Because left to my own devices, I will be confused and assume that characters are alive until they're dead, until they're alive again. So, hmm. I did think it was funny that almost everyone, when Professor Xavier's death was announced, like everyone on the line is like, hey, remember the last few times he died? Like, Oh, I thought that was great. The visual it's a really thing funny of that. that. Even when people were trying to be serious and like toe the PR line, they were still like, yeah, so remember he died like seven times before. It, it really was. It was this yeah. weird thing where it's like, you know, right. this is a big deal. But you remember for shits and giggles all the other times it happened? This weird simultaneous, yeah. you know, 
hype, buying into the hype, and completely undercutting the hype at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's... Isn't that really just about the only position left to most of the major comic news sites at this point? I, I, you know, in the sense of they're supposed to say what people tell them to say in that sense, but they also are aware because they actually are, they're not USA Today. You know, they're kind of, they have, a, they want to be able to, you know, not just come off like, you know, uh, mouthpieces, I think. Maybe, I don't know. I just, I thought it was really nice to see mm-hmm. something going beyond just towing the line. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that really there's, you know, again, it's that classic, like, what was nice was you really couldn't, I didn't see any way that Marvel could have faulted that approach. You know, I'm sure they tried. Um, <laughs> well, sure, of course. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, no, look, here's an interview overview of the character as we do when characters die. Just that he's died a lot. Well, it's it's about the only thing you got going for Professor X. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Professor X has, you know, he's been around for 50 years. His major accomplishments are um, <laughs> founding a team. Right. Not walking, walking, and banging an alien chick and dying. And coming back to life. And that's it. That's all he does over and over and over and over again. You know? Oh, I wait. Did I mention turn evil? Because I guess he turns evil he in does there turn once or twice. Lot, yeah. You know? Yeah. So I mean, it's kind of like to me. I'm like, uh, I, you know, I really wanted to talk about him banging an alien bird woman, but nobody was down with that. So my editor said to go with this <laughs> death thing. Yeah. You mean Majestrix Lalandra, Jeff? Come on. Oh no, I was talking about Moira McTaggart. <laughs> oh, you're right. There's two. Holy wait, wait, God. Wait, wait, wait. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm I was kidding, like, has there been a story where Mario McTaggart has turned into like a, a bird? Yeah, it's. I think it's every other issue that Graham. It's always like, ah, no, I eat like a bird. You know, <laughs> no, there no, no. Ah, is how Chris Claremont raised Germans. So that would be Nightcrawler. I mispronounced oh. it. It's ah, ch, ah, ah, eat like a bird. You know, oh, wow. that, that's is that, that close is, enough to you? That is possibly the mightiest accent you have ever done. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I have to say I feel very proud of that because that didn't actually sound Australian for a change. I can't oh, say that it did. sounded Scottish in any way. Oh, really? Is, are you going to take even this away from me now, Graham? Jeff, that, that was that amazingly it? bad. <laughs> oh. You know what's funny? When you were saying um, Bendis wasn't the person to write all new X-Men, I flashbacked... Yeah to flashed back even flashbacked um to a question someone asked me on my farm spring which was which which marvel title would you like to see steve englehart write i totally would like to see him write that x-men book mm, mm-hmm. mm, hmm. interesting I don't, uh, because englehart is awesome yes see i agree with that but what additional element I is there love, in it i would love for to me, see the I'm fact sort of... englehart can't write um he can't write subtly, but he also can't write subtext because his characters all think it. And so that would be right. fascinating to me because just imagine the thought balloons. Every single issue, there would be Cyclops thinking to himself, I'm trying to do the best I can, but I know that in the future I will turn into this terrible monster. How can I choke? You know, or, or right. Jean Grey being like, I'm also going to turn into a terrible monster and then I'll kill myself. How can I choke? And I'll be like, I'm going to turn into a terrible monster, but, you know, kind of nice, but I'm going to be a big blue and furry. 
joke. And then Angel will be like, how can I go on? I turn into a terrible monster with the razor wings. How can I joke? And then Iceman will be like, oh, fuck, nothing happens to me. Nothing happens to me. Exactly. I might be banging Kitty Pride, maybe. Oh, I don't even know who that is. Exactly. Mm. Is, is Kitty Pride good? <laughs> I, I'm not, I, she's not my continuity. She's like, probably, in fact, my continuity, she's probably like six years old. What the fuck? Exactly. At some point, I I no longer am anti-Semitic choke. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't I, I When was he anti-Semitic? Is it like... Oh, you weren't, you weren't following those Is this some sort of issues? coffee bean thing? What's going on? Yeah, yeah, totally. The coffee bean stuff where, like, you know, they're always doing the poets and, and then one of the guys gets up and reads that really horrible anti-Semitic poem and he's the only one who claps and he's really embarrassed. Fortunately, Lucifer breaks through the wall of the coffee. Come on, man. Roy Thomas Our and um, Werner Roth. I don't know. It really was Werner Roth. Um, you're the greatest <laughs> X-Men comic ever. I am so glad you talked over my terrible, terrible... Uh, Zelda joke. Oh, no. You should... Oh, of course. You're right. Dude, you get like 50 bonus points. Like, admittedly, it is good that we didn't hear it and it was perhaps hateful. But just the fact that you were able to pull up the name of, of Bobby Drake's old uh, girlfriend... Oh, Zelda. Wasn't Zelda Hank McCoy's old girlfriend? Was it? Wait, who is the other one then? Zelda and... I thought the... I thought Hank McCoy's old ex-girlfriend Yeah, was... Zelda and Vera. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought Vera was the You're beast. totally right. So. You're 100% right. <laughs> of course, I never would have remembered that if you hadn't mentioned it. So, Well, good team teamwork, Jeff. Yes, that's right. Taking down comics. episodes long. I feel mm-hmm. like, we, like mm-hmm. should we be doing something? Should we be having like special 100th episode birthday celebration or something? Abs- well, I don't know about you, but I am clearly resting on my laurels. So I think that that's, uh, that's important. No, I figured we would sort of talk about comics, review review some more new stuff. And then before we and, – and have some, I've got some other stuff lined up I want to talk about before we get into A, the celebrations, and B, we do have – Six listeners who were kind enough to oh, call so us. Glad. I completely uh, forgot about that, and I'm so excited. You can tell I forgot about it because of my oh, which was <laughs> far too excited. I'm sorry, everyone who had to sit through that. Um, yeah, I, I I completely forgot about that, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Okay, well, which is great. Well, maybe well, we should do before that before we do. I just want to say you have yes. to remind me when we're talking about comics. Talk about the crackle and the frost because I said I was going to a while ago, and then I didn't, and then someone called me out in the comments on it. Well, and to be fair, (laughs) what happened was, technically, what you said was, Jeff, remind me to talk about the Crackle and the Frost next time we talk, and I didn't. So, although the listener called you out on it, really, they should have called me me. out on it. No, because you told me to remind you, and I didn't. Jeff. Just like you told me now, and I'm not going to do it five minutes from now. So, Graham, let's talk about current comics and comics to come and tell me what did you think of Matadi's The Crackle and Frost? I think it's an absolutely beautiful beautiful comic that is so amazingly European it really for me mm-hmm. underscores the way that uh, American creators approach narrative and approach uh, mm-hmm. especially sort of metaphorical and emotional narrative than a way that Europeans mm-hmm. do because Crackle and Frost essentially is uh, all told in metaphor it's, it's magic realism but like yes. it's also very clearly a metaphor uh, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine I can't think of one American writer who would approach it in the same way or for that matter a, do a graphic novel where so much happens and so little happens at the same time hmm. 
That's a good question. Because uh, I sort of feel like, interestingly enough, I looked at a, a preview that I think was on maybe on Fanagraphics's page. Excuse me. Not the full thing, but an actual like maybe four page preview or something. And I found the art to be breathtakingly oh, exquisite. And you should have a look at the book. No matter how good yeah. uh, a web page it can be, when you mm-hmm. actually see the book, it's it really is jaw-droppingly beautiful. It, he's a, mm-hmm. an amazing artist. He's an amazing artist. And as I recall, the thing that's gorgeous about it is, uh, you know, his his use of color because it's is it painted panels or it looks almost like watercolors it might be Uh, pastel in places yeah yeah i was gonna say like like mm, yeah it wasn't watercolors it wasn't oils but but it's it is it is astonishing interestingly enough at the time i was looking at it it kind of reminded me of something where i was like oh like i know how to characterize this now and it was beyond, I think, you know, he did um, a graphic novel of, uh, I think, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde a mm-hmm. few years back uh, in 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 the, I think, the same style, which I remember Hibbs adoring. And it is a truly gorgeous looking book. Um, but looking at The Crackle and the Frost now, I was kind of like, oh, shit, I know who to compare it about, like who we can talk about this in comparison to. And it's kind of. Is it Oscar Zarate? Also, Maybe. possibly a name that is as obscure. Uh, Oscar's art right. is the artist who did A Small Killing with Alan Moore at this point mm-hmm. 20 years ago, a long time ago. Uh, but their use of color is yeah. really similar, especially in the book. Uh, right. Yeah, his, his colors are really vibrant. It is an astonishingly mm-hmm. bright book, which sounds really simplistic to say, but whereas I think the majority of uh, Deadly comic book painters it's a very muted palette mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. would rather be like okay so there's a shadow there but for dramatic purposes i'm making the shadow bright blue because mm-hmm. that fits mm-hmm. more with the emotional arc of going on right now or the or the you know the the aesthetics of the page and the atmospherics of the page um and so it, it right. it's in- astonishingly vibrant it, mm-hmm. it's just every I should explain. The format of the book is um, there's only two panels on every page. And mm-hmm. for the most part, all the text is narration and it's actually separated from the image. So it's pretty much like two ca- two images and two captions to every page. Um, and there's, I don't know, there, I mean, there's occasional dialogue that, that comes into it, but, but it really is occasional. Right. Um, and so you could almost look at each individual panel as a separate painting mm-hmm. or a separate image. Right. Um, and the scale of the book kind of assists with that. Right. Uh, oh, I think it, it sort of reminded me of, uh, I want to say, is it is it Paul Madonna? Who, who, you know, his work, he does a, does a, a the webcomic here for SF Gate, which is usually... I don't know why. Uh, it's it's like a still life, you know, it'd be like a still life of a San Francisco landscape and then a, a story or narration like written underneath yes, it or something. Yes, yes. Yeah. I do, I, yeah, you know I've I mean? looked him up. He's a, he's at paulmadonna.com, okay. people who, like me, had to look him up. Um, yeah, but again, I, he's going for the, well, I was going to say not even muted colors. He's going for grayscale, essentially. He's going for 
Th- that is um, true, yeah. And, and I really think right. that the colors, if, if everyone on the internet who wants to have a, a glimpse of this book, if you go to Fancy Graphics' website, they have, a, I think it's a 10-page preview. That must have been the preview. And you'll see, thought, yeah. just, just scrolling through the preview, you'll see what I mean in terms of the incredibly bright colors. He is, it's not even that he's not afraid of color. He rejoices in color. He, he adores using color in a way that so many people... So many comic artists, I should say, do not. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that's something that's changing in that I think that the more uh, we get used to computer color, the more we get mm-hmm. colorists, maybe not you know painters themselves, but colorists who are getting more experimental with color and getting more painterly. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you'll get, I mean, you get with this, things that should, would be in traditional comics, like solid blacks. Dead his solid blacks mm-hmm. are infused with color. And then there's a sort of, haze of color on the outset sort of sets it apart mm-hmm. from the rest of the image as well I, it, it's difficult to explain but the, the Matardi's art is is amazing in this book and, and definitely definitely selling point for me reading it in the first place but I was very right. quickly drawn into the story mm-hmm. yeah I would I would uh, 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 I think I think you're right I think that Matadi is his is ahead of his time and I honestly feel like with computer with coloring the way it is. Oh yeah, this is lovely. I'm, I'm actually, hopefully I'm looking at the first page of this preview. Uh, yeah, this is the part that, uh, I remember looking at. I enjoyed, it is gorgeous. <laughs> it is gorgeous. And in fact, some of the panels are just absolutely brilliant and abstract. I remember, oh, right. I remember and he takes up with this one woman and, uh, I remember thinking that it was kind of at least the the ten page excerpt that I read was a little bit on the banal side, story wise. You know what I mean? But it's um, uh, yeah, it's it's okay. um, it's not a fair sampling of what the book is like. Mm. Oh, it's um, the samples that I'm looking through right now. It seems to be from the start of the book, and so the book is. Mm-hmm. He has this relationship with this woman. It's an amazing relationship. The relationship ends. She leaves, and the book mm-hmm. is really. And then he goes after her. Mm. Interesting. And okay. Look, looking at it right yeah. now, it looks pretty much like she leaves on like the second last page of the the preview. Um, right. Yeah. So this, this, the book is really about his his journey, but very much his emotional journey it goes after much mm-hmm. more than you know. And then I met so and so, and then I met so and so. It's presented in that way. What yes. happens? What he goes through on the journey as presented, you either have to take as magical realism or metaphor, depending on how you feel about either. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, it is it is a gorgeous looking book. Uh, I have to say that the crackle of the frost um, is it technically out now or is it coming out soon? The Fanographics makes it seem like you can order I, it, it now. Came out last month, I think. Mm, okay, so and you got your hands on it. Beautiful, on beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, it's twenty dollars ish. It's nineteen ninety nine, and yes. it is well worth it. Excellent. See, mission accomplished. Crackle and the Frost discussed. Um, uh, you know, I actually want to talk about a relate something related in the sense that it was a thing that you recommended. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dynamite had their, uh, like, I think it was called Damsels in Distress sale, not to be confused with the current Damsel sale that's, that's I think, Arcadia is, is putting out now. Yeah, because it, it was um, with the release of Damsels, I, the new Dynamite series, right? Oh, it is. Okay, right. Yeah, so I think it was. Uh, but what was great is that it was a very, very inexpensive way for me to essentially uh, be whimsical with my money and 
by essentially the entire run of Jennifer Blood, uh, except for what I think was the two most current issues, which I picked up yesterday. So I've gone from the last time we talked, knowing nothing about Jennifer Blood, uh, to now having read all 17 issues. Um, and that's your fault, Grant, really is what like. I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, I, I actually, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by it because uh, I think that I think that Al Ewing's done a tremendous job of basically coming up with arguably the, I don't want to say the only way to make the book interesting, but coming up with a surefire way to make the book riveting and kind of give you that feeling of like a little bit of, oh my God, I can't believe what I'm reading, yeah. I suppose. It, um, but isn't, isn't and, it starts off yes. as kind of Garth Ennis Garth by numbers? Then Al Ewing comes in and is mm-hmm. kind of like, I'm going to make this worth reading. Well, see, and this is... <laughs> Do you- I would dis- I would I would I would feel somewhat differently about it than you. But of course, I know that I have I feel like I have more of an appreciation for Garth Ennis. Um generally, I didn't feel that Jennifer Blood was by the numbers when Ennis was writing it, but I found it fascinating the extent to which either Ennis dashed it off and wasn't paying attention to his tone or what he was trying to do and what he was trying to say was kind of profoundly interesting and fucked up, you know? Um, uh, And I will elaborate on that if you don't mind. Um, Okay. I just, unfortunately, because of the way the sound cuts in and out, there have been a couple of times where I've cut you off and I'm like, want to make sure I'm not cutting off Graham now. So one of the things that was hilarious about picking up the digital trades for the first two the first two digital trades which i think takes it up to issue 12 um is the first trade apart from having like nine million covers uh you know in the cover gallery like sometimes you'd like read the first issue of jennifer blood i think you have to flip through like six pages of cover art which is hilarious and then later at the end of the trade they have a cover gallery which is most of the same covers you already flipped through you know like really weird um but at the end of the first issue they actually have a text piece of grant of um of ennis talking about what he's doing with the title but published in like the fourth or fifth issue of the miniseries. So not only does it come up twice in this digital trade, but by throwing it in the first one, like I started to read it, but he talked about it. It's written as if you've been following the character. So it spoils things and what have you. I think I I skimmed it. But the thing that stuck in my mind was he was kind of like, yeah, I kind of was right. Everything that I was writing was so dark. I wanted to write something that would just be, you know, get back to the laughs is the way that he put it, you know? So, uh, and I don't know if you had read that particular text piece per se, Graham, although I, I would assume since you were getting the singles, it was probably in one of the, one of the single issues, but like that phrase, like I'm just doing it for the laughs comes back to like around issue four or five or so, Jennifer Blood takes catches one of the people that she's taking revenge on and smashes him in the face with an axe and then pulls the axe out of his face. His his hatcheted face is shown in close up as he's trying to speak. And then Jennifer Blood 
rehatch it to me. Why do you know what I mean? Shit, so, Come on, that's funny. Comedy gold. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my thing, is, is just this weird moment of like, okay, option A, Ennis started Jennifer Blood as being sort of an old pip-pip, this is, is going to be a laugh about like, what if a suburban housewife were the Punisher, and kind of move, and, and then sort of loses the tone and moves in his own... Um, given his own preference to something much more darker and more violent or, or B he really like, that's nothing, but that is Garth Ennis's definition of a load of laughs, you know? Now, okay. Um, you've read more Ennis than me, but I swear to God, my immediate reaction is it's B. Right. I don't know. Like I see your point. It may well be, um, I think considering, you know, this is something that we've gone round and round about with Ennis. And I think that, you know, the 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 fact that we're both squicked out by him, um, uh, somewhat gets overlooked by the fact that you are squicked out by him enough to basically stop reading. Whereas I have a tendency to continue to be interested in it and or mm. where it goes. Um, I feel, and I could be wrong, like, for example, how do I put this? Issue two uh, of Ennis's mini um, has what is clearly meant to be option B in that one of the people that Jennifer Blood is taking revenge on is a guy who has a porn star wife and who he likes banging at the front of his yacht while proclaiming himself king of the world. And Jennifer Blood, by the end of the issue, has, you know, handcuffed, well, manacled both of them by the legs to the front of the boat and then blown the boat up so that the boat essentially sinks and they drown while chained to each other. And in a parody of that sort of, you know, faux Titanic, faux Titanic triple X scene that he had at the beginning of the book, that to me seems like Ennis being clearly in his option B days. You know what I mean? Although I'm unfamiliar with Ennis, particularly like not having read the boys past whatever that first omnibus. Oh, I was was. actually just going to ask you about the latest issue of the boys. Yeah. See, no, haven't followed it. And in fact, they had a point where the digital omnibuy came up for like a on on sale recently. And I was, I was kind of tempted to pick it up because I kind of had that weird, like, well, didn't I enjoy the boys? Well, I did, but did I really enjoy it? This dollar amount of money's worth, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, all of which was to say, I didn't pick up the second boys trade, but because of my interest in Ennis and what you said about Al Ewing's run did lead me to pull the trigger later on, on Jennifer Blood. Um, so yeah, ultimately, even the stuff with the boys, um, there's that weird thing of... I feel like he usually makes his his stuff be over the top, not quite in the here's someone who gets a hatchet pulled out of their face and they're making noises and try they're trying to to make noises, you know, like and you're seeing it in panel close up. Um, that doesn't really strike me as Ennis's version of of slap is slap mm-hmm. his knee funny. You know, where would, where is, how do I put it? It would be one thing if the guy exploded from an overdose of amyl nitrate, I suppose. It would be one thing if the hammer hatchet stuck in his face 
and he ran around making muh, muh noises, and the hatchet, like, hooked on a door handle and, and tripped him. Yeah, no, I, you know I, actually, I, mean? I actually like, didn't know what you mean. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but usually I find that his B moves to, like, a weirder, uh, darker, but still somewhat Mad Magazine slash 2000 AD recognizable element of, of dark comedic cut-up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, hmm, so interestingly enough, I felt, and I could be wrong, that part of part of the quote unquote joke that that Ennis was going for by the end of Jennifer Blood is the idea that essentially Jennifer Blood, by virtue of being a woman, I think, if I'm understanding Ennis's reading right, is somebody who can commit horrific, cold-blooded murder and then dismiss it and go back to their suburban house life with absolutely nothing to bother them. You know what I mean? Um, now, of course, I think in that sense, Ennis really would mean the series not to continue past that point, you know? And one of the things that I like about Ewing's choices or the fact the choice that Ewing made is, is that Ewing says... Jennifer Blood, well, you know, in order to have more storylines with his character, Jennifer Blood is a character who never can quite, never quite takes care of everything perfectly because essentially she wants, she's, she, she's more interest, interested in being a bloodthirsty killer than she's willing to admit. Um, and of course, later, by the time you get to issue 17, he's so profoundly pr- flipped the premise of the, the main story on its head. Um, uh, but and, and so on the one hand, I totally love with that what, what Ewing is doing in the sense of I don't think I I think it's incredibly ballsy to take the protagonist of a book. And by the 17th issue of the book, she is very clearly the antagonist of the story. I mean, and has been like leading up to it. But the fact that he didn't back down or try and have it halfway, he was strict like, no, this person is just a flat out sociopath um, is really interesting. And yet at the, is really daring. And I think he does like some really great stuff with it. And yet at the same time, there's part of me that's like, well, I guess it's a good play, but it really somehow weirdly misses what may have been interesting about the first character. Um, the first no, no, I, I got you. Um, I yeah, I can. I both see what you're saying, and also because I don't accept your reading of the original incarnation, <laughs> I sort of immediately am right. like, sure, but do you know what I mean? I, yes. I, I think it really depends mm-hmm. on how sympathetic mm-hmm. you are to the original uh, reading of the character. Right. Well, yeah, and I guess I did have a certain amount of sympathy to her and the way that it was presented, and that for the most part, I felt like Ennis was kind of saying. Hmm. Uh, well, I don't know. For for me, I felt like Ennis was doing some some relatively interesting things for him. Part, I, you know, which is a, a kind of a concept of he's saying like, look, if you have a character who has military training who really does attack people uh, with a military approach, in a way, it's not especially interesting unless they make a mistake. You know, and one of the things that's kind of interesting about the first couple of issues to me of Jennifer Blood is, is here is a character who's made a point to do all the research and to do all the things that it takes to have something come off perfectly. Uh, and it does. And there's not much. What, what you get isn't necessarily 
the traditional drama, you know, you have to come up with different ways to increase the drama and, and the way that he sort of goes about doing that. But also, like I said, because he spends more time in his text pieces talking about having like trying to get his handle around his friends who have moved to the suburbs and what their lives are like. Um, and to that extent, I don't think that what he's trying to say is, is that these people all become sociopathic uh, as much as he does become. These are people who become absolutely distant to where, where they were, I guess who where they, they came were. from. Yeah. 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 I mean, to the extent that, that Ennis has a certain amount of horror for, uh, inherent in the Jennifer blood concept. I think that it's in the idea that people can so can actually that, that, that people can reinvent themselves. Um, but that who they reinvent themselves in the second time around is such a weird and blatant portrayal of who they actually are. Whereas I feel that Ewing is actually flipping it on its back. Um, and kind of saying that that you can't really escape who you are, particularly when who you are is somebody that, you know, clearly is a flat out sociopath in the way that they're acting in their life now, you know, which is which is really challenging sort of the nature of the adventure hero kind of at its very core. Um, and and I thought it was very interesting because I do feel that it, it points to the idea that and this is why I think that the book became more interesting to you is it points to a very humanist view and and a very humanist critique of the of the basic idea i can yeah i i think you're entirely right so that's why i'm responding to it more it just seems i i Mm -hmm. really read the initial ennis run as uh, i don't want to say hack work because it's not a quirk but it really did seem like yeah nothing really new from ennis Mm -hmm. Like something Ennis, like an, an idea right. Ennis had and then didn't really develop mm-hmm. and instead just wrote for six issues yeah. and was like, sure, I'll, you know, I'll figure it out on the way and then didn't. Yeah, I think there's a very good. As opposed to, I think, um, Al Ewing really dug into it and, and took, I guess, took the mm-hmm. concept more seriously than Ennis did. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Very well. Like I said, I'm not entirely it's, sure because, I mean, but, clearly Ennis did yeah. stick around, but yeah. I don't know. I know. just feel. Mm-hmm. I, I, I but feel that he goes to say that. so much more in depth and, and just does more with the concept. And it's, and mm-hmm. it feels really much like a, a surface. It feels very much like, you know, someone's like, can you just come up with a new series for us and write six issues, you know, and just, just get us launched. Right. And so he didn't really get engaged yeah, to just, the material. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I see yeah, a point. I'm, totally I'm not sure on that, that, you know, I have no idea for all I know. Right. Six issues he did are exactly what he wanted it to be. And, when he thought that would be right for the book i i really you know i could tell you mm-hmm. but, but definitely right. the way that ewing then develops what is there and he repositions it mm-hmm. and it positions the entire mm-hmm. book and the morality of the entire book um it is mm-hmm. really a far more in tune with what i would want to read also it's right. just so ballsy that I respond to it really mm-hmm. positively as well. It's kind of like, really? You know, you're you're trying a rescue mission on that? That, right. that always gets my attention. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's very daring. And even this latest issue, I mean, it's kind of hard for me to imagine, like, it's it's hard for me to, to, to think of the last comic book that I read that so clearly was um, working in the shadow of From Hell. You know what I mean? Like, I clearly felt that From Hell was a big influence on 
issue 17, which I just figured, which I just finished reading. Um, and that's kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I definitely feel that scene where she hacks apart a body is, is very much evocative of, of a similar scene in from hell and, and probably for very deliberate reasons. And I just thought I'm like, well, oh, that's pretty great. So yeah, for people who have heard Graham talk about Jennifer blood, here's more people talking about Jennifer. But blood. I, I'm uh, really it, happy it that you like it, I guess, because I, you and I are so far mm-hmm. apart on not only Ennis, but sort of like vigilante genre mm-hmm. that I think the fact yes. that both of us like right. it, Yes, although the, the yes, agreed. Although I think that I like it with a lot more qualifications because I can't tell to the extent to which, like you said, you don't really like the vigilante genre, and I can't tell to what extent Ewing is challenging the challenging the whole what do you call the a priori assumptions in the in the thriller genre, and at what point he's reconfiguring the characters here to do something that is, I guess, his critique, I suppose. Either way, people, you should you should probably check this book out. Even if even if you stayed away, I, I it, think yeah. that it's really worth worth taking a second look. Yes. That is that is that is what Jeff was also going to say. So um yeah, so I wanted to thank you for your recommendation because it really did make me pick those things up and it made for like I said, it it was I'm now completely caught up and very much on the Jennifer blood train. I'll be kind of curious to see how much, you know, I think the book really does do in the best possible sense. Now Ewing has this, you kind of have this idea of like, okay, it can't go any like next issue pretty much has to be the last issue. Right. And he kind of has that, um, has cheated that now for at least two issues, three issues since I've thought, mm-hmm. first thought that. So really ballsy, great stuff. Um, so yeah, I wanted to mention that. Uh, did you read Stumptown? Uh, I, 2. Did. 1, I did. I did. I was very, very happy to see that book back. Um, we we've done the Rucker conversation before. Yes, um, we have. And and uh, so the fact and, that it ties in with one of his novels, like as soon as I realized that, I was like, oh, I am one hundred percent sold. Oh, interesting. Uh, uh, Mim so? is the main character in A Fistful of Rain. The the client is ah. the, the client is ah. the main character in yes one of the novels huh interesting that's good <laughs> if you are a great well, that's fan. Just, like it means i mean I, if you just read the comic but if you've read the novel right there it really is mm-hmm. one of those things where you're like oh like the first three four pages when they're the band you're like the band's still together holy shit i didn't see that coming mm-hmm. and you know, there's st- no there really is there it gains this extra like the the opening really does gain this entirely additional um, meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is uh, that's really good to know. Um, I, I'm guessing you didn't like it's it. It's interesting because you know I I didn't <laughs> I don't know, man. I I didn't hate it. I mean, it was it was good. I was excited to see it. I was excited to pick it up. Um, and then I read it, and I guess as much as I enjoyed it... Well, how about I cut you <laughs> off and then say what I think you're going around? If I hadn't sure. read the novel, I would have thought mm-hmm. this was an incredibly slight issue. I would have felt kind of cheated, because I don't think a lot actually happens in the first issue in and of itself. And I, I think the, the the staging is very... Not lazy, but everything is the way you expect it to mm-hmm. happen. There's no real surprise there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Mm-hmm. 
it, it's from that I think it is kind of disappointing. Like a, a lot, a lot mm-hmm. of what I liked mm-hmm. about the issue, and I really did like the issue, comes from already mm-hmm. being familiar with the characters, both from the previous Stumptown series and from the novel, and having the sense of that's where they're at. As a, like, if I came to this cold, mm-hmm. I think I would have had an entirely different reaction to it. Yeah, it, the weird thing is, is I read the previous Stumptown, and it it was quite a while ago. And so part of me is like, I remember the character, the the main character Dex is being, I'm like, okay, she's a fuck up. She has a brother. Is it her younger brother who's got the thing going on? It's a younger brother. Isn't he autistic? Yeah, he's got some sort of special needs is what I'm going to think. And what impressed me was how none of that really stuck. Like you've got that opening scene, uh, which lays down essentially... That, that, you know, where Dex does not take a job and is very specific about it and kind of sets her up as like this character who's like, hey, I'm hungry to eat, but I got integrity. Um, that's fine. I think the problem is, is I read the book and it goes to great lengths to everything is sort of created and researched and all the scenes play out well. But I, I, I had this weird like... Yeah, I just didn't have much much of a sense of who this character was after this long gap. And it was kind of taken for knowledge, for granted, or alternately, the scenes in which I feel like Rucka is supposed to make me think, hell yeah, we're just kind of like, well, okay then. You know what I mean? Like, no, it's okay. Like her facing down a couple of skinheads and her sort of amused reaction to them was... Yeah, that, I, um, yeah I'm completely agreeing with you on that. That was a really weird, weirdly flat scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of like, it's great. And it I mean, it, sh- it should have been really good. And it was flat. And I don't know why. And I think that was it. E- pretty much every scene in this book felt a little flat and without context for me. And what's interesting is you mentioning the fact that this character was another character in another book. Part of me was like, oh, okay, that's it. But I really don't feel like that was it. I didn't, I don't feel like the band stuff was done overly long it wasn't too drawn out i don't think you know i mean all things being the same it's it's really three pages about, Jeff. <laughs> well yeah exactly i mean if that i guess technically it is from the from the well you've got you've got your cover page with the band performing you've got the three pages with the with the band then you've got another two four six uh seven pages with Mim talking to Dex. I think it's okay. I think maybe, maybe unless there's a re I'm sure there's probably a reason for mystery purposes, why the first three scenes exist there. The first three pages with the scenes of the band on tour and their backstage stuff to set everything up. But it didn't, it really kept the issue for me from landing as an issue. I see that's, that's funny because, you know, because I've read the novel, those first three pages kind mm-hmm. of made the book for me. Mm. Interesting. Because because there really there yeah, really was that know. sense of that's where they are. It's it's I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's mm-hmm. when I was reading because I really I had pretty much the opposite reaction. I thought this was a really good first issue, but I I also mm-hmm. had the I can't imagine what this issue is like if you haven't read the books because it was so right. Um, like my my response was so tied in with that. Right. Well, and maybe if this book, maybe if this if this issue had come out immediately after the last issue of Stumptown, I think I would probably be a lot more on board with it. Like, I, I part of me thinks that honestly the art is off a little bit. It's not as strong 
as I would like it to be. I think there's some staging stuff that kind of struck me as as a little off, I suppose. And maybe that's why I like the 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 you know the fact that the skinheads actually seem more like um vampires from an IDW book than actual skinheads, I guess, you know, is 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 part of the problem. But, Keep going, Jeff. Falka, I'll join but, you as soon as I stop laughing. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. But there there was something on the text page where Rucka writes something in a parentheses. Uh, where he's talking about like I've got notes for a case that'll send that sends Dex into Eastern Oregon, the high desert, where there are rodeos and cowboys. Picture Dex on horseback with a six gun. You know it's coming. Now, how do I put this? I'm not sure that like I try. I actually did sit back and try to picture Dex on horseback with a gun, and it didn't seem to give me nearly the warm feeling that it seemed to give Greg Rucka. You know what I mean? Um, I sometimes wonder if sort of the same way that John Updike uh, once criticized J.D. Salinger of loving his characters too much, if maybe part of my problem with Greg Rucka is I feel that he similarly tends to love his characters too much in a way that feels that, that, that Updike accused Salinger of essentially engaging in sentimentality. Uh, that I never quite feel like the emotions that the emotions that that Rucka wants me to feel for the characters have actually been mm-hmm. earned. Mm-hmm. I guess. Um, so that's it. I mean, the the admittedly by this point, I mean, I don't. You know, I haven't thought much more about Dex and Stumptown since I put down the trade paperback, however many months ago it was. I'm sure that Greg Rucka has been thinking about her. And what he wants to do with the character a tremendous amount. And maybe he's got a ton of people who have told him how much the character really resonated for them, which I think is great. But I did have this feeling of I wonder if part of the reason why it was flat is, is that how how Rucka feels when he writes that introductory scene with Dex settling in the train, you know, in her office in the train station is a is kind of a like like. People would react to it the way, I guess, closer to how you reacted to it than how I reacted mm-hmm. to it, you know? So I guess, like you said, there's a little bit of it of like, I don't know how someone would feel about this without having read the previous books. For me, I kind of have this feeling of even having read the previous books, which, again, was a bit of a mixed rucka bag for me. I, again, found myself kind of wringing my hands going like, oh, man, how is it that I can like a... a, a like the idea of a writer so much uh, without really liking the writer as much as I feel like I should, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a complex. It's because you're dead inside, Jeff. <laughs> well, you know, that would explain a lot. <laughs> you know, you're right. Man, I have to say, although that idea chills what should be left of my soul, if I had one, there's a way in which it lets me off the hook in a lot of ways that kind of feel like a relief. So, well done, Graham. I think you've hit on it. <laughs> what else have you been reading, Jeff? Uh, well, that is a good question. Another thing that I read that I did not get sign- very far into. Actually, I've had a really good couple of weeks as far as comicsology goes. I have to say that. Um, I read 
the Rocketeer trade that uh, was on Comixology that, as you pointed out, was relatively inexpensive. And so I did revisit it and go, oh, yeah, these issues, so beautiful. And uh, I think I talked about how I, I was it was interesting to revisit it after I think we talked about it on the last podcast, which is my my feeling that that Dave Stevens Rocketeer is a, an amazing, almost ahead of its time, like mashup of influences like before they were really doing such a thing taking everything that he liked in a pot and sort of cooking it up into this gumbo but it has some really bad well there's parts where the storytelling that i used to think was bad is i see now just a very different conception Mm -hmm. of storytelling like he he is not a big fan of uh having the rocketeer the character whose name is of course skipping me uh my brain at the moment cliff uh having cliff the rocketeer actually be a heroic figure you know what i mean i mean he's not he is a heroic figure in a way but he's very much a kind of hapless seat of his pants type hero in a way that i should appreciate because he's more like uh, he's he's almost more like Jackie Chan with a jetpack than he is like, you know, an ass kicker type. But and so rereading it, I was like, oh, OK, yeah, it really wasn't part of me. I hate to admit it was such a long time ago. It was hard. My heroic fantasy, you know, my reading was so um, flavored with the need for a heroic fantasy that I was a little poo pooey about it because it wasn't heroic mm-hmm. fantasy ish enough. Um on the other hand, the two story stories collected in the Rocketeer trade are pretty slapdash stories that do work or continue to work with unnamed Polpiro pastiches doing most of the heavy lifting. You know, the Doc Savage in the first one and the mm-hmm. Shadow in the second one. Um, and with some just weird flat out storytelling, especially in the the second half of the second story where everyone finds out that they are being hunted by a murderous figure from their past. And the reaction is, well, let's go on some dates. That's, you know that's, what I mean? Like, that's what you're supposed of... to react like. <laughs> uh, also, I have to yes. actually pause for once. Because you can't hear it, but the dogs are howling what? downstairs, Why? and I'm going to go and see what they're howling about. Okay. Um, this right. is great. This is my chance to talk while you're gone? Okay. I hope you're okay. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Hold on there. Uh, okay, listeners. Well, guess what? Now it's just you and me. I don't actually have anything to talk about, per se, that isn't more than my standard bitching. Like, I think normally I'd want to, like, say good things about Graham, um, which I think is fair. Like, Graham... Really, it, it is uh, the great part is he can't edit this part out or hear it until it's podcast. But let just between you and me, the listener, let me say how incredibly grateful I am uh, that this is our hundredth episode and that I've gotten such to be able to talk to Graham at such length. You know, this many times. I, I I'm always glad when it seems from your comments that everyone's aware uh, that it's something that we seem to enjoy doing. I can't really speak for Graham because I'm very. Uh, modest that way, but I truly enjoy talking with him. And it is something that has made uh, the last hundred episodes been really something that I've been uh, incredibly grateful for. And I'm really grateful that it is the sort of thing that you guys have continued to support uh, by listening, uh, by commenting, 
um, <laughs> by, by making noises that you would actually give us money were we to ask for it at some point, which is not something that we have technically done yet. But, um, uh, so yeah, I just really want to like, I'm sure everyone knows, uh, how great Graham is and really what an incredibly valuable resource he is, uh, to the realm of kind of comics reporting and comics commentary, like somebody who is still so profoundly a fan of the medium and well-read in it, who is willing to put up with the ongoing, what I personally think of as a shit slog of the everyday sort of struggle, I think, uh, inherent in comics news in which messages are tried controlled with absurd amounts of um, kind of iron-handed perspective and zeal on the part of the companies that uh, continue to dominate that news. Um, I think it's a really remarkable thing that he does and absolutely an incredible resource that we have for the podcast. The thing that would appall me is because I think Graham actually put himself on mute is <laughs> if he was actually listening to all Guess this. What, Jeff? So you <laughs> bastard. Hi. How much of that were you there <laughs> for? Enough to be blushing. Oh. Oh. I can't wait for you to hear mm. what I said when you were gone before. Yes. Oh, really? That's going to be hilarious. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, kill Jeff. <laughs> kill him. He's clearly the devil. In about 10 minutes, I'm going to mention his soul is dead. I'm not joking. <laughs> I'd like to announce, by the way, that my dogs were apparently barking for no reason whatsoever. I go and, get, oh, I go and see them. They're like, hey, how are you doing? It's really excited. Like, jump in my like, let's play. And I'm like, what? I'm so glad you yeah, showed up. I didn't even know you were home. Because uh, <laughs> honestly, you're talking and I'm hearing well them like played. howl. Not even like bark. Mm, completely I really hear them, yeah. howl. Both mm -hmm. of them. And I was like, what Good. the hell is happening downstairs? Nothing. They were, they were howling because they could. <laughs> of course oh, man. Of course they could. Jeff Lester, first of all, I, I, I thank you for what you just said. Uh, I, I don't know how to respond to it beyond that. You know how bad I am when anyone says anything that isn't absolutely dickish about me. Um, yes. So I, I'm horribly uncomfortable. Secondly, we should really do those calls if we're going to do those calls because we have been talking for like an hour and a half already. It is true. It is true. Listeners, uh, thank you in advance to the six people who called us. My apologies also in advance to number five, who, as you will hear, or sadly, more accurately, I think, not hear, um, uh, the person who called internationally with a bit of an accent had a crap connection and therefore left easily what I could tell is the longest, most thoughtful and in-joke laden of the calls. And yet... Um, I don't think we'll, I don't think it'll necessarily come out in the wash. But that being said, let's start off with our first call. Can let's see if wait, I did I this right. Say, and you can hear Jeff has heard these calls, and I have not. Yes, exactly. So hopefully that'll make things a little easier, or else more uncomfortable for us. Okay, here is if everything works right when I press this button, our first call. Hey guys, it's Voodoo Ben, longtime listener, occasional commenter. Uh, been listening since episode one. Just wanted to congratulate you guys on a hundred episodes, and here's to a hundred more. Thanks. Ben! Did you hear that? <laughs> Isn't that great? I did that not wasn't... expect you to sound like that. Yeah, I know. I didn't either. Oh, this could be great. What we all expected everyone to sound like. I don't know what I expected Voodoo Ben to sound like. Maybe just a little bit 
older. He, he, he does. Cool, you know I what guess. I expected Voodoo Ben sound like, and this is not a joke. I expected him to sound like yes. Ron Swanson off of Parks and Recreation. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know why, but I did. This, this is Voodoo Ben. Did he not type with any contractions or something? And I have to say, I found your production to be no, entertaining. I, I, I um, could not tell you why, but I really did. And so, yeah, that that Voodoo Ben sounds so much more approachable. Doesn't he? I guess I, there's something about the name Voodoo that just spells out danger. I did not realize how thrilling this was going to be to me. I'm like, that's what he sounds like. Thank you for calling, Ben. I'm really sorry that you've had to listen to a hundred of these. <laughs> yes, that's the spirit morale builder. Let's move on to the next call. Hey guys, it's Voodoo Ben, long time <laughs> listener, occasional commenter. Apparently we only have one call. Episode one, just wanted to congratulate you guys on 100 episodes, and here's to 100 more. Thanks. That wasn't the second call. Here we go. Hold on. Jeff Graham, this is Alex from Tijuana, wishing you a great and happy 100th episode. I'm from Tijuana, and I'm a big fan of your show. I've been a fan since basically the beginning. Uh, I've... I think I've already heard all your podcasts at least two times, and um, I have not much of a question, but more of a request for you. Let's say if you could talk about your opinions of Jim Starling's work at Marvel during the 70s and maybe the 90s with the Infinity Trilogy. I would really appreciate if you could talk about that because I know you're a big fan of uh, Marvel 70s stuff. And re- I recently uh, read the Warlock Essentials, and I think it was a pretty good book, and I think you would have liked it also. So if you could talk about that in your 100 episodes, well, that would be just great. And, well, here's wishing you another 130-something episodes, and keep it coming. Bye. Okay, first first of all, great Jeff, is that? we have a listener to one. That is amazing yes. to me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, really? Like, I wasn't see. I didn't see that one coming at all. So, um, yes, Alex, thank you so much for calling in, man. That was actually great. I would love to at least spend a few minutes talking with Graham about uh, Jim Starlin, and especially Jim Starlin in the seventies, who, as you have properly pointed out, is one of my very favorite artists from my vote. Oh my God, Jeff Lester, I want to talk about ever. Jim Starlin so. from the 90s. I totally I oh, totally read the Infinity well, Gauntlet uh, the other day. Oh, the Infinity yeah. Gauntlet itself? Interesting. I, I because that was on Comixology, and I think I might have mentioned, is one of the few books that I had that I purchased from Marvel through Comixology um, that seemed to really appeal to me. And I really dug it, it's, it's, frankly. So. It's kind of awesome, isn't it? It's kind of awesome the way that it completely mm-hmm. subverts mm-hmm. The crossover mentality. Because <laughs> it's like, here's all the Avengers, but really, we're kind of not going to do anything with them. Like, they'll all get killed. <laughs> well, but see, here's my thing. I actually feel that um, I, I was shocked when I when I read Infinity Gauntlet, and, and beca- in part because of the Perez influence, it surprised me how much it actually felt more like Marvel's Crisis on Infinite Earths than it did anything from the secret oh, wars. Yeah, very, very much. It's very much like a, a big, you know, cosmic unthinkable event that that yeah, just yeah. horrible things happen. It. I mean, until you realize very early on that they're going to have to hit the reset button because it's merciless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the first two issues, they're like, and then yeah. we fucking sunk Japan. Yeah, exactly. Like the first, 
everything gets wiped out on such a large scale. And with that Perez art, you're kind of like, holy shit. Like there's a, there is a way in which it does feel like a DC crisis in the sense that there is disaster happening, even as it begins to morph into something that's a little closer to Secret Wars in some ways, in the sense of a bunch of heroes up against a divine being. Um, the difference being that, of course, the divine being is they actually have to fight him as opposed to fight a bunch of other people <clears throat> on a distant planet. And it really has a lot more to do with the psychology of the character and the people around him being able to understand Which I kind of, I kind of love that Starlin like makes that text as well. It's not even subtext. Like at some point, Warlock actually says the yeah. only way we're going to beat this character is because he is self-defeating. Yes, exactly. Which I, which I kind of, again, is a thing that I really adore. I, it killed me, by the way, that after I um, uh, jumped to like boycott Marvel, not only is Marvel putting out like, for example, the Essential Warlock, which is the collection of, of the Starlin work uh, and is phenomenal. Not only did they put out somewhat so, quasi-ridiculously the, um, I don't know what they're calling it, the Thanos War? Is that the name of the trade that collects the Marvel 2-in-1 annual? No, it's, it's even annual weirder. It's called something like Thanos the Final Threat. Like, it's a really weird title. Wow. Yeah, it's it's very strange. But I was kind of shocked that that was in store. And part of me was kind of like, because... At the time, that storyline was such a phenomenal wrap-up to Starlin's um, Warlock. Um, yeah. Adam Warlock storyline. You, you know, just in like such a huge Big Bang kind of way. Uh, I find it sort of silly that it's being collected like as a trade, but I I can also see the their point for it. I think that they're in a way they're very smart to do so, um, since. I think they're, you know, since they've got Whedon talking about how that work was such a big piece well, of what do you not Do you not think that should be Avengers 2? At least uh, the first half of it. Yeah, I actually think that, I actually think that, um, although I could be wrong, it wouldn't surprise me if Guardians of the Galaxy and then the second Avengers movie end up being something like this book. It is called Thanos the Final Threat. And interestingly enough, it is out on Comixology, apparently, people. For those people who want to pick it up, it is, oh my God, the Thanos the Final Threat. I didn't pay attention to how much the book was, but the Comixology trade is only four ninety nine, which is I do think it's it's um, only the annuals. It's only the two and one and uh, Avengers annual, though. Yes, that's true. So there is kind of, it actually is a bit of a pain in the ass in terms of if you're trying to if you're reading these things for, for satisfaction, but I would also recommend and recommend, I recommend you boycott Marvel, <laughs> but if you're not boycotting Marvel, if you are unlike Jeff reading Marvel, exactly. Thanos quest issues one and two are available for a dollar 99, a pop, uh, on comiXology. And they are the two issues in which Thanos assembles the infinity gauntlet and lead directly into the first miniseries of the Infinity Gauntlet, and they are great. They're, they are Starlin taking taking cosmic storytelling and just basically taking everything that he set up, taking everything that other people have set up, playing with it, developing it, and kind of doing some amazing... Do you amazing want me to kind of blow it? your mind so, a bit here, Jeff? As I told do. you yesterday off mic, 
I have been reading Essential Silver Surfer Volume 2, which is the Steve Ang- the first 18 issues of the Steve Englehart Silver Surfer series, during which yes. all of the soul gems come together and the various characters mm. to use them mm. go kind of nuts. Interesting. Yeah. Really? It's like a really oh. quick throwaway thing for Englehart as well, like maybe two issues. Mm-hmm. And like the soul gem mm-hmm. takes over uh, the Invisible Woman and she becomes Malice again, mm. the, like the evil dominatrix Invisible Woman. Uh, and hmm. another gem takes over Reed Richards. <laughs> like, it, it, and it's, it's very, hmm. it's really funny because I did not, I always thought the soul gems were a Starlin thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, mm-hmm. for me it was, you know, they're, they're in the uh, the final threat, the storyline slides in the final threat, and then you know, Thanos quest, Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, Infinity, mm-hmm. whatever the other one was, what was it? Infinity War, yeah, Crusade, Infinity Crusade, it's the other Infin- one, yeah, um, Crusade, yeah, mm-hmm. and I was like, that's you know, no one else ever touched them. I know Engelhart sets up mm-hmm. all the Infinity stuff. Interesting. I'm. I'm not surprised. And is this is Inglehart's run before or after right, Starlin writes right it? Because of course Starlin writes right Silver Surfer too. Like, as I think okay. Starlin replaced Inglehart. Yeah. Okay. I knew I couldn't remember if it was one or the other, but yeah, I know that because in fact I believe Infinity Crusade directly comes out of Starlin writing Silver Surfer, which is part of why Silver Surfer is yes. in the yes. book. Is it yeah. Infinity Crusade yeah. in the capacity that he exactly is? Exactly what happens. Um, so. Yeah, I want. To, I'm trying to look it up right now, and the internet is refusing to obey me. But um, I'm fairly sure that start, uh, Steve Englehart launched the book. He's on. I want to say like issue mm-hmm. one through issue thirty-two or so, and then I want to say Starlin like immediately right. took over, and in his first issue brought Thanos back. Quite, quite yeah. clearly, knew Which exactly where he was going. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But no, I I really I used to really dislike the Starlin seventy stuff. It was a little bit too cosmic for mm-hmm. me. Uh, and as mm-hmm. as I've gotten older, um, I've really really mm-hmm. gotten into it to the point like this week this week where I read Infinity Gauntlet again. I have before that read both Infinity War and Infinity Crusade because I oh, read wow. Infinity Gauntlet when it was coming out. I didn't read the other stuff. Mm-hmm. I dropped. You know, I know what you mean. I think I maybe read. Infinity War and did not read Infinity Crusade, I think. Uh, and so I, I jumped back to read, like, I, I, you know, I read these other things in, in trade from the library, as always, and then was like, I really want to read Infinity Gauntlet again, because I really enjoyed them. Um, and so somewhere mm-hmm. in my library list, I have um, the Thanos The End miniseries, oh, which is like wow. him mm-hmm. trying to do his complete finale of it. Uh, yes. And which, as I recall, might have been what sold well enough for them to bring back Thanos as a series that he worked on before he ended up walking off of and shit-talking Tom Brevoort. About. Is that what he shit-talked Tom Brevoort about? Y- yeah, I think so. My understanding is is that he, if I remember correctly, he, you know, and, and sadly I don't have the resource in front of me, but I, my good friend John Gersten had lent me for an extended loan, which is terrific, uh, IDW's The Art of Jim Starlin, which is written by Starlin, um, and unfortunately, Starlin's very oblique about a lot of stuff, but he does say he went back, did Thanos the end, and he did not realize, I guess, that what he was doing was technically, like, quote-unquote, the end. Like, you know, the way that Fantastic Four the end or Incredible Hulk the end, that everyone else was on board, that they were essentially telling 
the final storyline. Like this is how this character ends. Uh, my understanding is, is through by not understanding that what Starlin created was basically a two part Thanos story or maybe multi-part that was that essentially, you know, did all this stuff and then but but wasn't set in an alternate universe, which once the sales were high, they brought him in and he did a Thanos ongoing series, but he did end up leaving that. And at the time, I think in the Art of Jim Starlin book, he he says the editors were incredibly terrible. And I don't remember if it's in another article that he calls out Tom Brevoort on or if he actually calls out Tom Brevoort in the book. And I'm misremembering. But they were working together on the Thanos series. And then um, Starlin leaves directly and with a certain degree of frustration. Now, am I misremembering that Starlin left mid-series and Keith Giffen took that over? Or am I? I think that's right. I think Keith Giffen... Although I could be wrong, I think Keith. I want to say that Keith Given comes in after, after uh, Starlin leaves, but I'm not entirely sure on that. I mean, I have to admit, for me, I think I picked up issues of Thanos: The End and found them relatively repetitive, so like slightly redundant, and so I didn't follow his like return with the series and things. So like looking at it right now, uh, it was a twelve issue series, Thanos. Starlin did issues one through six. Mm-hmm. Writing and drawing, uh, and then Keith Given took over with Ron Lim. I was wondering if it was going to end up being Lim. Yeah. That's kind of interesting because Lim's the guy who really has drawn a lot of Thanos. Uh, yeah, he's probably drawn the most because you know, he did the like Silver he... Surfer, then he did the Infinity books, and did he mm-hmm. also do mm-hmm. the Warlock exactly. series or not? I don't know. I don't know the in the Warlock and the Infinity Watch. God, was it in the? Okay, thanks. I'm like I was going to say Infinity Crusade, and I'm like that's not right. But yeah, in the Infinity Watch, um, I don't know if... And it's funny, I didn't bother with those issues either for some reason. Uh, I think because I I loved Warlock. Well, it, it was such a weird thing, was wasn't it? Because Warlock dying mm-hmm. in the 70s really did feel like the end of the story, very definitively. I remember even as a mm-hmm. whatever age I would have been when I was reading the Infinity Crusade, it must have been like 22, 21, Um all mm-hmm. I had read of Warlock before that was the Marvel 2 and 1 Marvel Avengers crossover. Oh, and wow, even really? then, I was like, they're bringing him back? Really? I don't know. There was, really was yeah. a, a sense of, why would you do that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Why would you do that? And there even was a sense like in, in, in as I recall, uh, in Infinite... God, Christ, I'm screwing this all up. Uh in the first of the uh, Infinity Gauntlet. miniseries. Infinity Gauntlet's first. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, war? I'm like, shit. No, yeah, Infinity Gauntlet. Um, he does a lot of things that it's like, oh, Adam Warlock's back. And he's completely new and better and perfect. But there might also be something wrong yeah. with him kind of thing that sort of was kind of... I wasn't quite sure. Like, Starlin really made it seem like... I totally know what I'm doing with this. And yet somehow the impression that I took away from it was kind of a, either he doesn't know where he's going with it or where he's going with it does not seem especially interesting to me, which is shocking, I guess, because I really did. Um, I had, man, I adored, I was, had read all of the warlock issues leading into that, that two part finale. And so I don't know. It's very odd. 
very odd. Um, it's also, it's kind of, of interesting to, say, to like... look back and also see that I remember when the Infinity Gauntlet came out, Thanos seemed like the bad guy. Whereas when you look back at now, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. he was just continually telling the Thanos story. That's mm-hmm. what he was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, or like it wasn't really about yeah. Warlock at all. It wasn't about Captain Marvel. He was just continually telling the Thanos story. Right, right. And that's a part that's really weird. I mean, it's good, it's, it's, it, but it's also frustrating because as much as he's telling the Thanos story, Thanos' story is so much more... I want to say oblique, I guess, than Warlock or Captain Marvel's. Like, I really am not sure that I subscribe to Thanos's growth entirely uh, as as Starlin continued to use him. I thought it was kind of interesting that he became a, a kind of fascinating antihero in that you would have him help the heroes, but for his own purposes, yeah. I guess. Um, in, in that sense, he ended up being... He, 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 it's weird. He almost ended up being what Dr. Doom almost became and then sort of receded into just sort of self-parody, you know, in the sense of he seemed like a, a very, you know, a, an anti-hero who, whose ability to play either side felt absolutely 100% organic. I think the problem with it was it was always within such a narrow, constrained sort of set of situations that I kind of ended up losing interest. You're talking about Doctor Doom or Thanos? Um, Sorry, Thanos. Thanos eventually ended up becoming like, you know, a rock-lipped Mary Sue in a way for me that I just, you know, eventually kind of got bored Mm. with, I guess. Which is a shame because really everything from his complete first appearance and... uh, you know, of, you know, sort of figure of sheer evil and nihilism to what he ends up growing to become is, feels like a pretty organic journey. And yet for whatever reason, just at the same time, didn't, wasn't either wasn't dramatized well enough or wasn't interesting enough for me. But I do think that the infinity, particularly the infinity gauntlet, and I would be interested to check out the other infinity books are remarkable for having Somebody like Starlin in that sense, being like Englehart, being a guy who was at Marvel, did amazing work, then leaves for a long period and then comes back and then does pretty much more amazing work in a way that is different but startling. To be completely fair, I think that Mm -hmm. his amazing work ratio sort of dips in the 90s. Definitely. The the, the Infinity books are – yeah definitely diminishing returns infinity gauntlet is by far yeah. the best and and mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. like a large amount the best now, yeah i can hear the docs now say it was because i have windows open so you can hear whether they're howling if they start howling you'll hear them um yeah but yeah yes. like crusade and, and um war and war especially i think is really really not compelling at all yeah it's a little bit turgid no for me it's sort of Thanos Quest, Infinity Gauntlet, and like I said, and I don't remember reading them thoroughly, but I read them enough to know, like, oh, wow, yeah, diminishing returns set in. Like, like, But at the same time, really it also fast. makes me really curious to read Thanos the End. Do you know? Because he, he then had the break, yeah. and I, if he was approaching it as, okay, get the shit done, I really want to see it. In part because yeah, as much as I like Jim Starlin's stuff now, when he did mm-hmm. the Death of the New God series, I thought that was kind of hideously 
tone deaf mm-hmm. and sort of mm-hmm. showed to me yeah. why Thanos, uh, why Thanos, why Starlin may be great at cosmic stuff, but he's great at his own cosmic stuff. Right. And then when he, when he uh, steps into I other remember, people's cosmic uh, yeah. stuff, it's like, oh, really? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, having him do the death of the new gods miniseries was an interesting idea. And I'm glad that Dan DiDio was such a Starlin fanboy that he gave Starlin work during that period. I'm just sorry that Starlin's work so didn't jibe with everything else that was supposed to sort of be happening in a way. Um, but also, like you said, on its own, it kind of, there's, there's a really weird feeling of, you know, the irony is, despite the fact that many people have pointed out that Thanos appears to be a, you know, a, a, a dark side analog pretty heavily. By the time you see those characters done in uh, Death of New Gods, they really feel like a weird pale imitation of Starlin's work, not the other way around. So, yeah, I remember being so bummed out by that entire series because... Everything that you see Starlin doing, you can I can see why he's doing it. But and anyway, the same my I had the same feeling about Thanos. The end. I'll be curious as to when you revisit it, because I found it somewhat of a diminishing returns. But to to sort of bring it back to uh, Alex's question, Starlin, early part of the '90s, we adore. I I adore his work in the '70s. Ironically enough, completely separate from all this, uh, Cormac O'Connor on. Uh, who is a listener of the program, um, he and I were exchanging messages on Twitter because I had uh, tweeted about um, the uh, science fiction sale that Arkea had had recently. Um, and I wanted everyone that were fans of Profit to know that Old City Blues by uh, Giannis Marcolis was, um, was available like as a you know digital trade for like, Four ninety nine or something, as opposed to its its usual nine dollars. And uh, Giannis, uh, whose name I probably just blew, is the the artist who's been doing recent stories of, of profit. Anyway, in the course of swapping stories with Cormac about what was available for Twitter and how cheap, he mentioned that the Dreadstar Omnibus was still and it's still relatively cheap, right? And it is. It's. It's. I think it's nineteen ninety nine for three hundred and seventy seven pages. Uh, and long story short, but I now have a copy of that. I haven't had a chance to dig into it. I got the. I read the first issue of Dreadstar, um, and I really wish I had read more of it because it seems like a good time to talk about as a sort of comparison contrast as to where. Starlin was in the 70s and where he ends up in the 90s is this whole stretch with Dreadstar, which to me, on the one hand, feels like Starlin light in a lot of ways. Like it's very much Jim Starlin kind of doing his version of Star Wars almost. But but it's still kind of nonetheless. Uh, it's interesting. I was going to say, and is absolutely fantastically enjoyable. But the first issue was a little bit of an exposition slog. So I'll be kind of curious to see if that if that stays or not. I remember adoring the series when it first came out through Epic. I'm looking forward to reading more. But the first, uh, gosh, maybe it was like 39 pages or so, um, pretty much kind of has an enormous amount of 
having the characters talk about how they all got involved in this rebellion against their will and Mm -hmm. why, essentially. And how this ties into Thanos, I think it's fascinating that Jim Starlin has some real interesting concepts on farming. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, because I totally had forgotten about this, but... When Dreadstar, you know, basically is the only survivor of the exploded Milky Way, he ends up on a planet farming and all he wants to do is like farm. And that happens to Thanos, too. Jim, you Jim, know, yeah. that's, doesn't that's it? That's at some point. Infinity Gauntlet. That, that's essentially fakes his death and yeah. then goes off to become a farmer. Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. What sort of weird, sensuous appeal the agrarian lifestyle holds for oh, Jim Starlin. Oh, come Starling. on. You, but it you is really kind of, can't. It's, it's the getting back to nature. It's the abandoning the struggle and it's instead becoming one with nature and, and working with the land and working with the natural way of things instead of trying to impose your will on it. Counterpoint, Jim Starlin is sexually excited by the color brown. Because there's a lot of brown in the farming scenes, and I thought it was cool. All I'm saying is, I think in this one, I might be right and you might be wrong. I will say this. <laughs> Let's split the difference. It's tough to I tell. Say- it's tough to tell. It, it could go either way. Um, we have been talking about Starlin, which puts me in mind of Chad Nevitt, who's probably having an orgasm right now because he loves Starlin so much. And he is possibly the only person I know who's read all of Dreadstar and I think likes it, and then read, Bre- then read Breed as well. This Ooh, The reason wow. I'm saying this is, I don't know if you've been reading Chad Nevitt's graphic content blog, but um, anyone who wants probably the smartest writing about Avengers vs. X-Men should really check that blog out. Mm -hmm. It's um, graphic graphic content, as in the words graphic and content, but put together so there's only one scene in the middle. .blogspot.com You know, I think I did read his thoughts on Avengers vs. X-Men number 11 there, and I thought that it was pretty... Pretty good. He was. I think he was also of the. I think they sent out the press release to actually let people know what had happened. So but uh, he also. I, was great. I can't remember if it was after that, before that, because I pretty much caught up on all of them the, this morning. Um, the reviews: Avengers vs. X Men, the miniseries from '87. Really, it, mm-hmm. it is the same oh, plot great. as the current one, um, and also the original Avengers X Men thing from like X Men issue nine or something. I thought the second the the Avengers X Men thing from the eighties was all about like Magneto it, and trying to catch him to put him on trial. But as he points out, it, is the Avengers going to basically kidnap a mutant who they've decided is more dangerous, is too dangerous to be running about alone, and then the X Men react with violence? Ah, interesting, interesting. That's a good point. I also definitely like his characterization of Cyclops as the last hero. It's all very, very good stuff. Um, Right now, people, Mm -hmm. you should totally read it. Also, he writes about in the Uncanny X-Men tie-in, the X-Men committing genocide. Mm -hmm. And then how often genocide comes up in Marvel Comics events. You realize it also comes Mm -hmm. up in Secret Invasion Mm -hmm. and the Ultimates. Oh, dear. Uh, Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. So um, graphiccontent.blogspot.com, and you should all go and read it. And then say something about Jim Starlin. Yes. Yes, indeed. In fact, I should contact. uh, Well, anyway, let's move on to the next message. Yeah, if if we go, here we go. Uh, And once again, Alex, thanks for calling. Gentlemen, congratulations on your 100th episode. I'm Robert G., and I've been listening to your podcast since your inaugural episode. And Yay. I can't be 
distinction of initially writing a scathingly critical comment about the poor sound quality <laughs> of that first podcast, which I think made Jeff cry. Absolutely true. But I'm glad it stuck around because despite occasional technical glitches, such as Graham sounding as if he was podcasting in a sex dungeon full of yapping dogs, <laughs> it's Portland, so I get it. You gentlemen never cease to entertain. It's just gotten better. Again, congratulations. A hundred more episodes. I'm looking forward to. Thanks, Thanks Robert. Isn't that great? He's absolutely 100% uh, correct. No, I mean, I didn't actually cry, but I, he did cause me a certain amount of like, oh, <laughs> rabbit dog. But, really? That kind of is oh, that's horrifically great, on point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The best part is he's, and then he's like, well, I understand it's Portland. So, you know, that's brilliant. Uh, Robert G., thanks so much. It's been awesome having you around for all 100 eps. Uh, your criticism ended up being constructive uh, in the end because I feel like I've worked very hard on this sound um, and so that there's maybe hopefully there's less crying. Interestingly enough, it sounds like there are teenage youth are, are killing people outside on the street outside. What I was going to say, Jeff, is have you noticed so far in the call, everyone was like, here's 200 more. Clearly, they're telling us we should stop at episode 200. <laughs> That's true. That is true. They're like, not more than that, because that would be weird and frankly exactly. a little taxing on everyone's time. Seriously, seriously definitely guys, if you do them like more. weekly, then that's that's like another two years. So come on, stop after that. No, no more after two twenty fourteen. Yeah. Well it it I God help them, I <laughs> I can see their point. <laughs> oh man. Call four. Uh, yes, call four. Here we go. Let's see if I can count this off correctly and start this correctly. Hey, uh, this is Sean Whiskey. Just calling to say that uh, I listened to every episode of Wait What, and that's the only podcast I've ever done that for. I don't really have a question. Just uh, keep going, guys. Good job. Thank you. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff please could you play awesome. the start of that again? Because that was so alarming. I, I was kind Wasn't of Wasn't that joke. great? Yeah, okay, I'm going to play it again. And it really is. Great job, Sean. It's hilarious. Hey! Is that the best or what? Yeah. Oh, God. I bet we could. I bet I bet the comic, if we got this to the comic book, our, uh, our Burning the Hell guys, they too would probably start off their podcast with. Hey! I don't know so why I'm being attacked with this. I really like Sean. I have no idea why that amuses me so much. It's just I don't think I ever expected Sean to start anything like that. I think I, – well, I think that's very deliberate. I mean, you know, I, I, even, I it's hilarious. Even as, having even as a joke, though. Time with him. Yeah. yeah, maybe. <laughs> hey! It's it just is, good. It's, it's, it is. It's just but, great. Sean, first of all, thanks very much for listening. I'm like – I really like Sean's stuff. I feel kind of weirdly honored and unworthy that he's listened to all of this. Uh, but also, thank you for, hey! <laughs> yeah, absolutely. People, uh, if you don't already, check out um, supervillain, uh, I want to say it's supervillain.blogspot.com. I don't think Sean's uh, updated it in a while. Well, and then there's supervillain.tumblr.com, which I was going to point out, which is Sean's visual feed, which is excellent. Um, there's a lot of amazing stuff. Um, it's kind of horrific to me how young, uh, talented, and knowledgeable Sean is about stuff. He actually 
it, it's creepy to me that he is a better writer about the 70s than I am, considering I don't think he was technically alive at that point, and uh, I was. So um, he's a fantastic guy and a great writer. He also did a 12-part series over Comic uh, Comics Alliance um, looking at the book DC Books Solo. Uh, they analyzed it issue by issue, he and Matt Seneca, and I thought there were some absolutely devastatingly brilliant points um made by each of them but i'm definitely on team witsky so i thought that i thought that sean did a tremendous job with with that so keep an eye out for that guy um i'm only hoping that he gets published more both on the internet and the real world really soon so and if none of that convinces you hey (laughs) so you know it's it's like being present at the birth of a meme (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. We should find some picture of like Sean and like at the hey, you know, and then have one of his quotes that, you know, Batman comic writers are perverts who should be burning in hell. You know, I don't think he's actually ever said that. Now, all that being said, again, I apologize in advance. I didn't know how to fix the sound quality of this next caller who uh, is awesome, but may not be audible. Okay. Let, let me know what you think, Graham. Hey, podcasters, it's Julian here, wishing you a heartfelt passion to back a spectacular achievement of reaching your prologue to Sackside, Downside, Weight Watch, number 159.1. Now, I'm pausing here. So, is it safe to say you I, had trouble I, making it out as, maybe as, making as much as I did? I am maybe making out every tenth word, sadly. I, I, genu- I genuinely made yeah, out spectacular... Yeah, and with what number one hundred fifty nine point one, and that's kind of it, sadly. Yeah, yeah, which is a shame. So, our apologies in advance, Jahan. Uh, I probably should have like figured out a way to contact you, I guess, and let you know so that you can maybe try again. I wasn't that smart, so I'm going to play a little bit of this more. Uh, well, or yeah, I guess. I, <laughs> well, I don't know. It goes on for a while, which is the problem, and is about that inaudible. Uh, so it mentions Engelhart. It mentions best wishes for us for the next 159.1. It actually, I think, mentions various stories that we should pitch um, based on in-jokes. Like, again, the horrible irony is the person who crafted by far the most in-depth message is the one message that ended up being inaudible on, on our on our thing here. So... Um, so I'm going to skip over it, actually, from this point on. Do you have a name? Also Looks like hear it. a name. Well, see, that's it. I think it's Johan, Johan but I'm not entirely sure. Here, let's let's see if I can. Hey, podcast. It's Julian here wishing a hot dog. See, I, th- I think, here. yeah, also, I... It's Julian here wishing a hot dog. Johan, thank you very yeah. much, and I'm really sorry that we can't hear you. Yeah, and, and, and believe me, I, as much as... I, 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 the reason why we're not playing your message is pure, uh, the entirety of your message is pure, just purely because of that whole horrible thing that tumbled the towers of Babylon. Or I guess there is tower. A, I guess there's But John, if but, you uh, listen yeah. via savagecritic.com, um, could you leave a comment mm-hmm. so we know who you are? Yeah, so we can thank you for it. Uh, apologize. Read any written statement you wish to leave for us. Uh, we will certainly do that on issue episode 101 or two. Um, and thank you for calling. We're sorry that technical difficulties prevented, like I said, what is clearly a really funny and enjoyable call that uh, is un- unfortunately marred by ugly, ugly technology. So, 
and then that leaves our sixth and uh, last caller. Uh, hello, uh, Graham and Jeff. This is Garrett calling. Wish you guys congratulations on a hundred episodes. Uh, my question is, I would like to know who is your favorite Hank Pym um, alias or character, whatever you want to call it. All right. Thanks, and uh, hope to hear much more from you guys in the future. Thanks a lot. That that was thanks, great. Uh, was it Derek or um, Garrett? Oh, I thought it was Derek. Hold on. Uh, hello, uh, Graham and Jeff. This is Garrett calling. Wish you guys. Huh. I can see now where it sounds like Garrett, but it sounds with enough of a K. I would say let's like go to the Google to Voice transcript. Uh, hello. Uh... <laughs> but that probably yeah, says exactly. hello. It's How helpful table. that is. Peep. As you said, <laughs> listeners, I don't know if you guys have ever used Google Voice, but if you do... What happens is when you leave a message, Google emails you its guess at a transcription. The reason I'm saying a guess is I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying that maybe 50% of it will be entirely wrong. And the system is clearly thinking, I don't recognize that word, but it kind of sounds like this word. To the point where the voicemail transcription can bear no resemblance to what you're actually saying but read like some of the greatest nonsense poetry you've ever heard in your life. And now Jeff has disappeared. <laughs> I know. I made the mistake of like, I should have told you, I'm going to put you on pause, uh, on mute on my end so that I can Look actually try and find um, out. go to Google Voice. Because I, cause, yeah, both to look at it to see and find out, but also I thought that it would actually amuse people if we So do you have pieces. one? Um, uh, hold on. It's loading up. Uh, I had to open the browser cold. So um, let's continue to talk about things. Now, uh, for people who actually are sorry, not not the ones that are sorry that they called, but the people who are actually sorry that they did not leave a message for us, feel free to call the number uh, and leave a message for us. Um, I think that number is, do, do you know, Graham? It's like 415-846. The number is what? oh shit i just shit. remembered um johan is sorry everyone is julian L lewis blair who had told me that he was going to call and couldn't get through and it was at the time it was because he was um you know dialing he's dialing from new zealand seen, i think so he's I've actually seen calling that us twitter conversation yeah exactly i told him to call i said to try mm-hmm and it totally blanked my mind. So that's who it is. He says, he says, it sounds like John. It's actually Julian uh, or Jail Blair, I think is, is how he Twitter's he's, on. Uh, he's, that makes me yes. even more sad that we can't hear the message. I know, I know, because he uh, continues to be uh, absolutely one of the my favorite people to, to chat uh, on Twitter with, along with um, Cormac O'Connor and others. Uh, and I was especially like, I just realized like, oh shit, right. I was really looking forward to hearing his message and now, and now yeah, exactly. I'm still looking um, forward to hearing the his number message. Is, yeah. The number is 415-843-1836. Great. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So according to Google voice, um, okay. it's Derek, but the transcription of Derek's message is hello, Grams, Jeff. This is Derek calling which you guys. Congratulations. Find 100 episodes. My question is, I would like to know who is your favorite hand in, Elliot's or character, whatever you want to call it. All right. Thanks and hope to hear much more from you guys. Future. Thanks a lot. 
So you get a sense of how good Google Voice really is with these. Um, interestingly enough, Sean Witzke's is the one that I think comes out the clearest. And even then, hey, gets turned into, <laughs> Oh, okay. that's even better. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Robert G ends up being Robert Sheen. I can see that, though. So... Yeah, I sort of. Yeah, I sort of can too. Wait a minute, what happened to these other messages? Oh, okay, good. It is marked as. Because uh, like, are there other calls that yeah. you didn't download? Uh, no, 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 no. It's just a funky. This that um, the one from Alex in Tijuana sounds. Google Voice thought that he was called. He's saying, "I'm from T4," <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Uh, Robert G becomes Robert She, which is also hilarious. Uh, and then uh, Julian. Uh, it's an amazing word salad of which, unfortunately, Engelhart becomes the phrase Engel. Becomes <laughs> to be Engel fair, I think that's entirely so, appropriate. Yeah. Exactly. Anyways, our answer exactly. the question. So, again. Hank Pym. Oh, yeah. You know, the thing that's ironic is sometimes happens with when people ask us questions now. I'm always <laughs> like, God, didn't we answer that just like a few episodes ago? I could be wrong, but I think that. Uh, Graham and I are both pretty in favor of the Hank Pym alias Dr. Hank Pym from Englehart's West Coast Avengers when he had the ability to put um, oversized stuff things in his like lab coat and sort of break them out and have them expand to incredible size and continue to sort of do, you know, where he was basically shrinking and growing other things, not himself. I always liked the look of the yellow jacket costume. Um, but I never really felt like they did anything interesting what? with him. Like he basically schism. Well, I mean, apart exactly. from slapping people up. Oh, yeah, I, that's it. I'm like apart from my apart from how weird that character is. Definitely. But also, yeah. it's the one that introduced yeah, 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 him that. is crazy, which is 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 a massive is a nutbag thing. Yeah. It is a massive thing, and even more the fact that Roy Thomas is kind of like, and that's okay, true believer. Wink. You know what I mean? Like, that was the other part that's very weird about that. It's like, hey, Wasp married a lunatic, but it's all right because she got her man. There you is. Know, um, like, have you seen? Mm, oh, you haven't read it. The the Bendis ooh. oral history of the Avengers is spectacular when it comes oh, to that God. part of it. <laughs> it's really funny for trying to make that work. Could you basically get Hawkeye being like, okay, we all kind of thought that he was like – we all knew it was Hank. Like, there's no way that we didn't recognize him. It's the same guy. He's wearing a mask. It's not that hard to see through it. Yeah. I mean, again, part of me is like, I think that's both hilarious, but also, you know, even worse than what I was bitching about in terms of, uh, of uh, the, the one part of Al's Jennifer blood that I didn't like is a little bit of that whole thing of like, when you get to that level of like, come on, he's wearing a mask. It's not that hard to figure out. It's kind of like, yeah, I don't think that's the argument that you should be making 50 years into your comic book <laughs> empire. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a gimme. It's kind of like them saying like, I mean, let's face it. Spider-Man's not really crawling on walls. We know that's impossible. You know, Just if you look yeah. at it, who's the only person in the Marvel Universe that is completely able to actually do what he says he does? Me, Hawkeye. That's right. I'm the only believable guy in this hey, universe. Jeff, all I'm saying me. is this. You know, you don't know what they're planning for Amazing Spider-Man 700, <laughs> and neither do I. That would be great. 
He like puts his hands on the wall and then can't take his hands off. He's like, I'm, <laughs> wait, I always knew help. this was gonna happen. Shit, I'm going to starve to death if somebody doesn't feed me. It's the it's the sequel to Trapped in the Closet, Trapped on a Wall, the the Spider-Man epic we've all been waiting for. Uh, so anyway, I love the yellow jacket costume. I love the fact that he had a gun, although it never seemed like he did much with it. I did, but again, part of me was like, he didn't, all of a sudden he sort of flew around and zapped people and then got small. I don't know. Weirdly, against my better instincts, I ended up adoring Hank Pym when he was the trying to reform Dr. Hank Pym, who was like, no, no, thanks. I'll try and just be sane. Here, have a couple of like, you know, guns and jetpacks. And Rover. Hank Pym. Is that the name of the auto yes. mechan- giant the, the, robot? The, his, basically his, his mini Quinjet, Rover, who can talk like Knight Rider. Engelhart, you magnificent bastard. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, all of those things are awesome. There's I'm, nothing no, that's I'm not serious. awesome about I think it's great. That. I think so. that, whole, that whole character arc of Engelhart's it's with Hank Pym, I think it's really, really great. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he ended up with, and then he's just going to wear a red body, like a red suit of dungarees and shrink sh- shit. Go! It's awesome. Right. No, I do. I, I agree. I think that stuff is brilliant. Uh, I don't know where we're going to go, but I should mention that um, th- also, thanks to other sales on Comixology, I picked up the first issue of Bloodshot. Enjoyed it. Picked up the second issue of Bloodshot. Talking about the New it. Valiant series? Um, no, no, yes. no. It, just, it was a leap from Steve Englehart to Valiant. <laughs> well, I don't know. My, my attention span's shot, Graham. I know we've been talking for a while. It's a few minutes after five. I'm just trying to think of, for one thing, I know we've got a little bit more time. And I was like, you know, we're so close to, I, I don't remember whom, and my apologies, but someone had thought that it would be kind of great if we uh, had did an episode uh that episode 100 be essentially all comic reviews no meta as they put it and i think we did i'm assuming by meta they mean us talking about the behind the scenes I, of the comics and what's going I, on i feel apart from I feel like a we've brief done a fair bit, bit of, of meta yes yeah i i, I think Have you? i i think meta comes with mm. our territory sadly uh, and I, I think we've done a chunk of meta but i i'm with you go go talk about valiant talk about bloodshot do it right do it. Do it now. Bloodshot, number two. Fun. Bloodshot, number one. Fun. I kind of, I like the very screwed up concept that they have there. I guess maybe not having read the original Bloodshot, I kind of like that this is a character that has a lot of um, potential as far as their powers go. Uh, and then that there's a relatively, the first issue itself is sort of an enjoyably self-contained uh little bloodbath issue so to speak second issue i enjoyed although there's a part where somebody has their arm ripped off and you get to see like the parts of their bones sticking out struck me as kind of weirdly gratuitous um on a similar note at least in sense of i'm reading it enjoying it and i didn't read the uh, originals i thought the first two issues of archer and armstrong by fred van linty and clinton henry uh, I was going to ask really if you were reading that because I, I think that might be my favorite of the Valiant titles right now. Although it has to be said, Harbinger, I am adoring. Oh, so Harbinger is the one you adore. I know. I, I thought Bloodshot the Bloodshot was the one you were adoring. Yeah, and it's all funny. Of them with, like, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Exo Man of War is pretty much the one that I'm not so sure about. And the other three I think are great. Mm-hmm. Bloodshot was the one where I was like, oh, holy mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. I'm really kind of surprised how much I'm enjoying this. Yeah. Okay. That's the part that struck me, the surprise. And then when I picked it up, I'm like – huh, I can totally see it because it is an enjoyably 
complex situation and scenario that gets laid out. Like, especially that first issue does, I think, a really good job of setting up the status quo and also showing you and breaking this, the, the status quo at the same time uh, in a way that's pretty enjoyable. So, yeah, well done. And, yeah, Archer and Armstrong, really fun, too. Um, I picked up the second issue of Godzilla, The Half-Century War, uh, which has Godzilla in Vietnam. Again, James Stokoe doing some phenomenal work. Maybe in some ways not as revelatory as the first issue, if you're a Godzilla fan, but also considering it has him fighting another giant monster, um, it's it's still incredibly enjoyable. And uh, I like the end of it, which suggests that there's sort of more of an overarching, sto- overarching storyline that's going to be propelling things forward more than just having a, um, a POV character. So uh, I thought that was really good as well. Um, I want to say that there were other new comics that I picked up that I'm super, super crazy about. It's, it's been so long since we've is, recorded as well. I'm trying, I'm like, what, what have we actually, yeah. like, yeah, I know exactly. what have we read since we last talked? Um, I, did I yeah. tell you, have well, I talked to you since, uh, the Excalibur sale and I bought like the first 13 issues of Shadow Cabinet, the milestone team from like 1994? Oh my god, no. that book is wow years ahead of its time. I, I here's the thing: I bought How it, so? and I was actually the the um, Debbie behind the counter does not like she's not snarky, but I'm buying it. She's like, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay, then. There was quite clearly a really you're buying this, um, but it was it was fifty cents an issue, Jeff. <laughs> I was like, I seem to remember mm-hmm. I really liked this as a, when I was younger. Ooh. And I turns out I did. It's really, really great. It feels like it is at least a decade ahead of its time, though. And, and just, it, but it, mm-hmm. it, it solo made yeah. me think I kind of want to go back and buy all of the milestone comics now. Yeah, well, I would be fascinated because last time I think I visited you, I went to Excalibur I, and oh, bought a huge oh, yeah. handful of the zombie issues. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was fascinating to me because on the one hand, the story, the the. Story was interesting. There were parts where the art was unbelievably slipshod. Like, I really was, like, surprised. Yeah. Like, I was like, wow, this is stuff that you would expect to see, you know, in a Tijuana Bible, except there's no sex. Speaking of Tijuana Bibles, sex, and things that we've read, and especially things that we should talk about. Oh. Oh, yeah. In fact, Black Kiss number two, which you had read and I read last week. Oh, shit. That's where all those other comics were. Um, Weird ass shit. I have to say you're absolutely entirely right when you're saying that that is pretty much what I expected from the first, what I expected the first issue of Black Kiss 2 to be like. And I was expecting, and weirdly, I quote unquote enjoyed it more, I suppose. Um, But it also, like the first issue, did an amazing job of pointing to the idea that maybe Howard Chaikin has forgotten to tell a story or something. <laughs> or he has I don't know. to tell. Like, yeah, I sort of feel that he, yeah, maybe that's it. I feel like he feels like he thinks that he's got an amazing story to tell that has something to do with tying together the things that he had made subtextual in the first series he's going to make explicit no pun intended in the second miniseries but 
it is so incomprehensible at this point. You know, it's something along the lines of like cinema equals incubus sperm question mark you know what i mean like it's a very i, I can weird, imagine that, that is his it, entire like plot he's got a whiteboard in his office and that's entirely it and he's like that's yeah. that's gonna last me six issues yeah exactly like no problem i know to- what a what a beautiful roadmap i know where this is but yeah i think for me there's a little bit of the idea of i i think that he really feels that he has something to say. It feels like he is honestly trying to say something about the nature of corruption, but I'll be goddamned if I can figure out how he thinks that he's saying that or, or putting that forward in any sort of comprehensible way, much less any sort of, you know, quote unquote entertaining way, you know? Um, and yeah, there is a point around the time of the the donkey blowjob sequence that I was kind of like, "Wow, they're really they're real." Like, yeah, like why why should Diamond distribute this in a way? Because I don't. It's not even at that point. It doesn't even have. There's not even really a warning label on the comic. Uh, I there? don't think so. I I do, well, do I didn't remember. Buy it. I don't I have it, it in the, front the of me. Image FTP site for as a review copy. So I don't know. I don't know what the actual comic looks oh, like. Oh right, uh, there we go. Well, that's perfect. You don't know, and I can't remember. My belief is is that it is not labeled in any way. And talking about all of those things, but also being something that we should have probably talked about three episodes before. Uh, if you won't read, then why should I write? By Jarrett Kobeck. Did you ever get a I copy did not. from I... Jarrett? You would like a copy. <laughs> Really? Oh my God! He's going to shit because they mailed he his publicist was supposed to mail it to you three weeks ago. Didn't get any. Okay. Well, um, Jarrett, if you're listening to this, time to go chew out the people at Penny Annie Press because Graham didn't bring it up. Uh, Graham didn't get it, which is why he hasn't brought it up. I just haven't brought it up because I'm a horrible reviewer. But everyone else, if you won't read, then why should I write? By Jarrett Kobeck is is I think soon to be released by Penny Antipress. Like last time I checked the website, I think it's coming out in October. It is, as I think we mentioned before, a kind of phenomenal series of transcripts of the non-sex parts of celebrity sex tapes with amazing titles like Paris Hilton uses a computer topless while preparing to smoke marijuana from a dragon-shaped bong with Tommy Hilfiger model Jason Shaw. That's a perfect title and sadly perhaps maybe a bit um it does it, it there's also awesome things like charts showing you essentially the distribution of pre- prison sentences as ordered by race for the celebrities in the book and the distribution of prison time served as ordered by public celebrity at the time of sentence so there's also um Oh, although I should mention that the statistical analysis in this book does exclude genocidal dictators, um, of which there are a few transcripts. Uh, So everyone, including Graham, you should pick up, if you won't read, then why should I write? Jerk Kobeck. It is not a graphic novel. It is all prose. It is a, what I would call a brilliantly conceived and executed jaunty condemnation of modern society and in particular, celebrity culture. 
but great in a way that's entertaining and uh, mind provoking. That sounds kind of awesome. Also, Bandette, issue two. I, I, thought I was have phenomenal. not a chance to read Did you get a chance to read it yet? Uh, Cole are sitting on, I guess, I guess a virtual cloud somewhere. I have, I have bought them, but I've not read them. Yeah, I, I bought them today, and uh, I wanted to read Amelia Cole. I didn't have time before I dashed off to my appointment, but I did read Bandette number two. I thought it was great. Everything that I liked of the first issue, but more or less times two. So I just, I can't wait for them to do that another means, that one. That means, of course, by that ratio, the third issue will be everything you like, so the first issue is times three. Yes, or perhaps Cube. No, no pressure going ball. <laughs> Now, you, as is uh, perhaps appropriate for our 100th episode, are beginning to sound like oh, a real Oh, really? You went through a period of saying something else about and then you started you went by sounding normal. normal. That's the Really? That's well, fascinating. Yes, yes, it, it has been. Uh, and yes, oh my God, you're right. It's two hours, 37 minutes. We should indeed wrap this up, I think, so that I can begin the exciting process of... Uh, of uh, Editing it and posting it for everybody. Jeff Lester, you are a hero all the time. Ah, well, thank you. Thank you, Graham. I, I appreciate you saying that. It's very, very kind. Um, uh, if On a related note, if you, anyone happens to know of a practicing psychiatrist who can offer discount rates or alternately a audiovisual nut who would be willing to work as an un, unpaid intern, you can just email us. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what podcast at gmail.com for your comments. Oh, yes, I should thank yes, Sarah. Sarah I actually yeah, dropped this a very long time. Sarah, you already emailed this week. I did with yesterday. I was so happy to get your email because everyone normally says that's very much the way. I think it's really, really, really good recommendations. And you were the first person I've ever said my sense line up more with Jeff. I was so happy to see that. <laughs> it's it's kind of been a really really good day. So thank you very much, sir. Yeah, that actually that is that is true. I was actually kind of shocked too because she mentioned that she had you know grown up with with manga and then had made the jump to America. Never really saw the interest in American comics before we started talking about it. And I'm like, but but I read manga all the time. But you know, like when we did our, did you start reading comic because we mentioned it? And everyone's like, well, Jeff mentioned it. I think that's just because I am way more, if I'm into a book, I'm going to like go to the wall for it. But also, as I pointed out to you in the email, there's a lot of people who have picked up Double Barrel, uh, they said, as a result of our recommendations. Thank you, everybody. We hope you're still enjoying it. Um, The fourth issue just came out recently, which I don't think Graham has read. I read and continue to be delighted. Go Team Comics, everyone. Go Team Wayboy. Yes. 100 episodes. Yeah. My goodness. Pretty great, huh? So, um, oh, the other thing is, is if you have not had a chance to see it, uh, Matt Turrell, who's a listener of the podcast, and this is one of the things I really appreciate, actually, about this podcast that I didn't mention while you were sitting there like a sneaky bastard. Hey, I, I, just, I honestly didn't hear that much. Is, yeah, so you say. I'll never know, though. Um, okay, so anyway is uh, the number of people that I've met through the podcast, you know, who I talk to via email and Twitter, who send me fantastic recommendations, and in many cases, actual books and comics, uh, some of which I still have yet to read or review in some cases. 
But in others, for example, Matt Troll today sent me a link. Was it today or yesterday? To the latest XKCD. Oh, I, I've Graham, seen. If it's you haven't kind seen, kind of fucking mind blowing, isn't it? It it is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. It is. It's the comic. Uh, titled Click and Drag for very good reason. And it is one of those brilliant, just absolutely brilliant things of um, a, what, a justification for webcomics? It's not like webcomics needs a justification, but an absolutely delightful um, way to play with the form in, in a way that's kind of... Before we disappear entirely, I am going to do one last recommendation, which is See, it you don't comes sound and like goes. It's really weird. Um, Dustin Harbin. Huh. I, th- I was talking about this uh, last week, two weeks mm-hmm. ago, on, on Twitter. Um, Dustin Harbin did a series of diary comics that are available online called Boxes. Um, holy crap, yes. people. If you have not read it, you really, really, really should. I can speak from experience. If you can get a copy of the print version, it is spectacular mm-hmm. as wonderful as the online version is and it's really amazing the print version i think is a preferable reading experience or at least it was for me um there's just something about the way it reads in print as opposed to clicking through each page individually um mm-hmm. i'm now, i'm now on his website which is darbin d-h-a-r-b-i-n.com and if you scroll down you can actually purchase diary comics number four includes boxes that's the one you want to get it is really, really, mm-hmm. really, 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 really good. I can't say really enough. It's very... <laughs> no, yeah, it's apparently not. <laughs> it's maybe my favorite thing I've read all year. Oh wow, fascinating! I I have to go give it another tumble on the web. I think that Dustin Harmon is incredibly, incredibly talented, and uh, is one of those, you know, uh, proverbial names to watch. I think he's going to be a massive talent. Interestingly enough, Boxes was one of those things after hearing amazing stuff from David Brothers about. I hopped to it, and I don't think that I started reading it. I don't know. I, I, it was, I think I did it wrong. It was I would take a couple of reallys off. Let's put it that way. Got punched like Scott Pilgrim, the last Scott Pilgrim was for me. Like, it really was one of those, mm-hmm. oh, crap. Like, the, this, this is speaking mm-hmm. to me about my life things. It, yeah, I, I cannot mm-hmm. tell you how much I love it. I, I really thought it was amazing. So, yes. Darbin, D-H-A-R-B-I-N.com. There's a link right there in the front page to buy Diary Comics number 10, or you can read it online. Yes. That, the latest XKCD, the, the cartoon titled Click Drag. There, we covered web comics. We've covered digital comics. We covered in-print comics. You've talked about your magical library comics. I, I think we're done. Get. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that, I think that, I think we should put a little bow on episode 100 and, and, uh, walk off and get ready to do it next week with episode 100. Bye! I was so tempted to go, hey! <laughs> that, that would have been great. Hey! Ah, oh, God bless you, Sean. Bye! Uh, thank you, everybody. Bye!